We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome on in. This is the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast for NFL Week 14. A lot to get into. Fantasy playoffs are just around the corner. We break it all down here. Let's start the show. Welcome on in. This is the Roadwire Fantasy Football Podcast for NFL Week 14. I'm your host, John McCackney. That is Mario Puig. And uh, we have an awesome slate of games this weekend. Some real uh, marquee matchups. We get we got Chiefs Bills. We got Eagles Cowboys. A handful of other interesting ones thrown into the mix. But uh, we start out with a game that uh, really might be the tipping point for Al Michaels as far as how much more he wants to do this because tonight, on Thursday Night Football, we have the Pittsburgh Steelers hosting the New England Patriots. The over-under in this game, Mario, do you know what it is off the top of your head? No, but um, I'm assuming it's, let's see, it has to be the lowest on the slate. And I saw another one of the games was 32 and a half, so 28 and a half. At the Mario Sportsbook is close. Uh, to, to consensus, but not quite there. It is 30 uh, and a half, but I oh, still love the under. It's a little way. optimistic. Yeah. Like uh, I, uh, John, did you, uh, have you seen Bailey Zappi play like throwing uh, footballs? I mean, unfortunately, yes. And, and what bums me out is I loved him in college. Like he was, he was really so good college quarterback. Yeah. yeah was, I mean, I just like when Western Kentucky's good. There's something fun about that program and their amorphous red blob mascot in their offense. Uh, you know, Zappy to to I think beat Joe Burrow's all time like passing touchdown record for a single season was wild. But uh, yeah, as far as his transition over the NFL, we saw a bit last year. I think we we got a pretty good glimpse of it. And obviously, that this past weekend against the Chargers. You make the quarterback change, and it results in getting shut out, and yet you ride with him again. Um, so that's that's what we're looking at here when it comes to the Patriots. Yeah, I kind of get going with him just because he uh, is at this point a human shield for Mac Jones, who's uh, not exactly a treasured asset for the Patriots, but they can only make him less valuable by putting him out there just kind of keep getting more psychologically damaged and uh, that's basically what this offense subjects a quarterback to even when they're playing against uh, you know teams that don't have TJ Watt and Highsmith and Hayward and whatever else so this 
could honestly, John, the highest or sorry, the, the biggest threat to the over in this game is probably the Steelers defense and yes. the number of t- turnovers they can create, which could be unless the Patriots run that one pass attempt offense that they ran in against Buffalo last year, mm-hmm. they might turn the ball over like seven or eight times in this game. Like they, they have to they can't throw the ball. That has to be that has to be the step one of this offense. Like we're not going to try to throw the ball ever. And if if you deviate from that, I think it just turns into just a total nightmare for them. Yeah, uh, there's pretty much no other way to put it. Um, that the Patriots just need to protect themselves and and run the ball and uh, hope that they can kind of win the position or field position battle and also hope for um, you know a couple arm puns from Mitchell Trubisky on the other side. So that that's certainly in play as well. I, I saw an interesting stat, or I was just kind of compiling some some numbers earlier this week, and the Patriots, you know, they've lost three straight, probably more than that actually, but uh, <laughs> in that in that span, they've allowed twenty six points, pretty good. Uh, they have scored thirteen points. Yeah, uh, the whole thing with this team is is as bad as they are. It really is mostly due to injuries, and uh, to a lesser extent, yeah, they they screwed up their wide receiver personnel. They should have signed somebody anybody other than juju smith shoes somebody with with you know two functioning knees mm-hmm. uh but even with all the things they did wrong on offense and all the things that went wrong with the offense that defense even now is good enough to keep them at least you know against lesser teams against lesser offenses that can keep them competitive and if they had everybody healthy and if the defense if the offense had just been you know merely the 25th best in the league they would have had a competitive team because of how good that defense could have been. Like you're seeing a defense right now that gets at least decent results. And yet uh, something like, you know, the, the three best players are just not on the field. It, I guess Duggar's on the field, but uh, in any case, it's, it's brutal what that team has been subjected to. And it's, it's as bad of a job as Belichick has done. Uh, it, it still is a case where it's like, man, this team has incredibly bad luck this year. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Um, you know, when we were talking preseason, uh, you know, you were you're crossing it out there that, you know, this could be a, a special defense for New England. And obviously with, with Judon and, and Christian Gonzalez going out like that, that changes things. But the defense still, by and large, it has been a, a strong, strong, solid one uh, for fantasy purposes. And I think t- tonight is another <laughs> for them. But, you know, now, now we're getting into team defense. So. Uh, before we before we move on to the Steelers uh, side of this equation th- this evening, uh, obviously with Ramondre Stevenson uh, being out with that high ankle injury, what do you expect from Ezekiel Elliott? Do you think he's someone that you would feel comfortable starting if you had to this weekend? It's not the ideal situation. You know, it, it, it would have been nice if this was a non-Bailey Zappy offense and if ideally, you know, facing a a defense that isn't quite as explosive as the Steelers, but just insofar as he's a starting running back and on a team with no obvious competition for him, like Ty Montgomery and Jamichael Hasty, uh, at least the at least it shows that the Patriots were assuming that they're going to play catching up, and you know that was probably the right calculation. But like those guys can't take carries, so the Patriots can't throw the ball. Montgomery and Hasty can't take carries. Even if the Steelers kind of just blast the Patriots into outer space in this one, 
I still think Elliott gets to 15 carries. Like he would have to get hurt to not get 15 carries in this game. Yeah, I think the volume is going to be there. His, his posted prop at most places is 60 yards. So that that's usually a good kind of like jumping off point for um, what to reasonably expect from his production this evening. I think he can get you that. Maybe a couple of, of uh, dump off passes type of things. Oh, so yeah. I think he, he's like fringe startable, but you, you definitely don't feel great about, about the ceiling. Um, we do have an interesting stat in the chat from our guy, the Harry Snowman. Oh, wow. The last time a team, this is in regards to the Patriots, uh, has allowed 10 points or less in three games and lost all three games was 1938. <laughs> the Patriots have scored eight or less points five times this year. That equals the number or that same number in Tom Brady's 283 career starts for the New England Patriots. And and I, you know, to, to make this a, a JFK. Those are amazing. Lincoln, yeah. These are so good um, to, you know, the. Abe Lincoln, JFK, uh, parallels, uh, 283 starts for Tom Brady, 28 to three. Does that ring a bell? Perhaps the oh Super boy. Bowl against the Falcons. Yeah. That adds so, up all again. My, my tinfoil hat is at the dry cleaner right now, but I love that. Uh, oh, that's regardless. dangerous. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, thank you for those stats. That was crazy. I had not heard those. And, uh, those, those are like, Finding those crazy stats takes some querying, you know? Yes, uh, queries that, that I'm simply uh, incapable of, of, of coming up with. But um, on the other side of this one, obviously Kenny Pickett uh, has the uh, the tightrope surgery on, on his ankle, so he's going to be out for at least this game. That means it's a, it's a Mitchell Trubisky night. Um, Najee Harris, I think, is is in line to play uh, last I saw. So that, that means that, you know, he... Him and, and Jalen Warren should uh, split the carries to a, to an extent. There, uh, we'll see if if Najee's you know less than hundred percent enough to where Jalen Warren kind of starts to become the, the RB one for for at least uh, tonight. But your expectations on, on this uh, Pittsburgh offense led by Trubisky? Well, no practice this week for Harris. I could see it being uh, you know he misses the game or at very least is not getting nearly the workload he usually does. So. It'll be interesting to see what Jalen Warren does uh, with an extended workload. You know, he could do it for sure. It's just like, what will he look like doing it? Because he's gotten into this role with the Steelers where he's basically a drawback and off the bench kind of guy. And there's a big difference between playing that role and playing the role that Najee Harris had. So if Harris being injured, uh, limited or out, puts Warren into this, this workhorse role, he might in my opinion, all of a sudden start looking like probably not in one game, but uh, certainly if he had to do it for more than a few weeks at a time, I think you'd start to see him settle in more like he did in college at Utah state and Oklahoma state. And John, you should always be very suspicious when a running back prospect averages more yards per carry in the NFL than they do in college. Jalen Warren is one of those to an extreme degree. He's at like a yard over his, his yards per carry in college. And it's not as if he was on like a like a, a doomed series of offenses when he was playing in college. You know, it was the difference was he was in a workhorse role in those teams, and he probably was not running at that 125% motor every play like he does now. So um, I'm not saying expect like a Tony Pollard level drop off in efficiency, but that is the basic dynamic that we're dealing with here. He's going to get more work than he's been accustomed to in the past couple of years, and. He's going to be getting carries on types of plays that he didn't always get before, like low expectation carries. So 
Uh, I think he can handle the volume, but I don't think this five yards of carry stuff is going to happen. Any, at least not in this particular game. Yeah, not not tonight. And then uh, I know some people are on the fence with with uh, whether they should start uh, their Steelers receivers. Um, so when it comes to Deontay Johnson and George Pickens, uh, how are we feeling? The target volume has to be okay, especially in the case of Johnson. But I do worry that the targets are incredibly low value and off target, low depth, that kind of stuff. But this, I don't know. I I feel. I feel like it's totally justifiable to start either one because in my opinion, anyway, the Steelers should kind of eventually take control of this game. And while yardage and, and good throws and extended drives are not likely to be conducted by Mitch Trubisky, a short field is the kind of thing that even the worst offenses can sometimes take advantage of a little bit. And I think at least by the second half, the Steelers should be holding on to the ball past the 50 a good amount. And I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, maybe it takes 12 targets and a corner slipping down. But, you know, if, De- if Deontay Johnson got a touchdown opportunity, I-, I wouldn't be terribly surprised just because I feel like the Steelers are going to be within range at some point. And, it, you know, there's only so many candidates in the offense. Yeah, there, there really are. So I-, I think you just kind of have to hold your nose and, and hope that of the one or two touchdowns that get scored uh, this evening comes through the air. Um, and, and that'll kind of be that um, let's go ahead and move on over to, to Sunday's slate. But before then uh, we got a message from our friends over at Circa, get ready for the ultimate big game parties at Circa resort and casino. Super Sunday is in Las Vegas this year. Watch the big game poolside at stadium swims, big game viewing party, massive screen, booming game sound, and a view of the pyrotechnic and visual effects throughout the game. Snag the best seat in the sun, daybeds, poolside boxes, cabanas, and more, or touchdown at the world's largest sports book, Circus Sports, for the big game bash. Can confirm, very big sports book. I've been there. Three stories of football glory featuring a 78 million pixel screen. Book your seat with a variety of of reservation options, including bottle service, open bars, stadium-style food, and more. Don't miss these legendary viewing experiences on February 11th. The big game parties only at Circa Resort and Casino. Reserve today at CircaLasVegas.com. All right, Mario, we are on to Sunday. Let's start here in my backyard. we got the Falcons playing host to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We've got the Falcons set as one-point favorites in this one, uh, I mean, it's so hard to know what to do with any like other than the Panthers. The the NFC South is impossible to, to figure out. Basically, like you know, you never know what, which uh, iteration of the Saints you're going to get. The Falcons, same deal. Maybe the Falcons are the most stable of that bunch, and that that's why they're the favorites uh, to win the South. And then the Bucks, you know, they have the proclivity to uh, you know do some crazy stuff on on the other weeks, and then just kind of get boat raced in another. Uh, they, they held on to, to beat the, the Panthers last week, but they didn't cover. I was upset about that. Um, what do we see here with, with this game taking place in Atlanta? Uh, it's tough for me because, uh, I well, one thing, I, I can't get the Atlanta injury report to load, but uh, the Buccaneers have been a bit beat up on defense, and they appear to still be. And uh, I think Vita Vey might be a new part of that injury. Like Jamel Dean's been out for like a month or whatever. And 
Uh, Levante David's been playing hurt or maybe missing time. I can't remember. So there's there's a bit going on. And Carlton Davis had been playing hurt. Sometimes guys kind of just keep playing with the injury, even when they get taken off the report. So uh, all of that occurring and all of the bad results the Buccaneers defense has gotten lately, I can't tell how much of the like prior assumptions about that defense hold at this point, at this particular time in the year, like this could basically be a bad Buccaneers defense, uh, even if only for injury reasons. And if they're bad, uh, maybe Desmond Ritter can't really screw up as much as usual. I don't know. Uh, I guess it's not the easiest either to think through the Tampa offense that because they're just so inherently kind of sketchy hit or miss at best. It's not so much that I worry about AJ Terrell being a major impediment to Mike Evans. It's it's more like at this point, I'm worried that Baker Mayfield can't really get the ball to anybody else. And when you're that sort of offense, like you, you better be really good at that one thing that you do. You better have um, and, and more ideally yet, you would have a more consistent run game that you can leverage the play action off of to get that one target going. But so often it seems like the Buccaneers offense is just kind of Mike Evans and when he's rolling they got a shot but if he isn't carrying them and if the Rashad White screen passes aren't carrying them into scoring range it's like I worry that they could do surprisingly badly even against defenses worse than this but uh just the same yeah the, the Falcons are so stupid and bad it's it's like how can we give them any benefit of the doubt to toward anything in particular I don't know it's like this I guess this could be one of those games where it's like the team that wants to lose it more does and uh i don't know but with either organization you can imagine a lot of fatigue with the players and and like there's just disheartening circumstances with with each team i don't know it's uh i'll i guess i'll pick the buccaneers just because i think mayfield's better than ritter yeah but it's like i can't when i say that out loud it's like does that really matter i don't know yeah mayfield he's a cagey one uh if nothing else um but um, to your point on the injury front for, for Tampa Bay, uh, it it's not. I mean, these guys should end up playing. They're they're all listed as questionable, but it, it's still not great to have them on the injury report. You got three fits of of the starting offensive line, including Tristan Wirfs, uh, being listed as questionable or or being on the injury report this week. Vita Vea, to your point, um, questionable as well. Devin White even on the injury report. Jamel Dean on the injury report. So that that's. A lot of key players that that are um, even if they're out there are going to be less than a hundred percent. So I do kind of like the Falcons at home in this spot, but I think that this is a game that, that probably uh, comes down to the wire. Like that, it's decided uh, late in this game. I, I don't think that either team ha- has the firepower to like really pull away necessarily. Yeah, neither of these teams can play mistake free either. So it's just I don't know, kind, kind of. Uh unstable it's just it's it's not explosive it's it's unstable it can like implode on itself so many different directions mm-hmm. uh, it's uh hmm. yeah that, that'll be a game that that i hope i don't have to see too too much of um let's uh let's move on to uh farm city we've got the ravens playing host to the rams ravens seven point favorites in this one i'm not I'm not so sure the line should be that high, but then again, um, it's been proven time and again that that the Ravens are, are quite good under Lamar Jackson against NFC opponents. Uh, they're quite good at home as well. They're, 
Ravens off the bye. The Rams are not. So there's a, a, a rest advantage there. I think Marlon Humphrey's going to be back in action for Baltimore. It is supposed to be rainy, but warm on, on Sunday in Baltimore. Um, but your, your thoughts here when, when it comes to the, the seven point spread and, and how we can see this game unfold. I guess we got to keep an eye on the injury to uh, Byron Young. Like if he's out, then the Rams pass rush is just Aaron Donald, which is not something you just uh, assume will go well exactly. But it's it's a little easier when you literally have to worry about no one else at all. So that's uh, that's reassuring for the for the Ravens. Basically, I'm not seeing as much cause for concern on their side, uh, especially since Matt Abuike's listed as a limited practice he's not cleared but it you know it, a lot of these times when the guy is practicing all week they got a shot and uh yeah. whereas if he, if he had in a practice yesterday i would have been like uh probably not gonna play him but they probably don't need him either i mean I, the rams are, are so weird to me on both sides of the ball but lately the, the offense has become more strange to me i just don't understand how uh how it all works to be quite frank. Like I, 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 when I talk about some of these other Shanahan school coaches, I feel like I can understand them a little bit better, but McVay is just so confusing to me. And I, I can't ever get a beat on what it is that he's doing or when it works, why it does really like, it's just, I can't, I can't figure it out. So uh, I don't want to assume anything in particular about the Rams offense, but They've struggled enough this year, and I feel like their personnel is sketchy at enough key points that, at least in this setting in Baltimore, I'm not going to err on the side of optimism. I, I think, um, again, like Stafford has has even when he's played well this year, he's had he's had so much just grinding through it to do, and uh, as great as the production is, especially for Nakua. I, I just it's it's hard for me to see it as especially sustainable or even if it is it's like a, I, I question whether the offense as a sum is producing enough and one thing I definitely am willing to fade is the idea that Kyron Williams is like an offensive centerpiece running back uh, they've been putting a lot on him he's gotten good results but in this matchup I think the lack of talent will be glaring I don't think he gets an inch really. I wouldn't be surprised if it's it's like he goes into the second half with four carries or something like that because McVay just uh, McVay tends to not run the ball unless it's just the defense daring them to do it and the Ravens will never even even if the Ravens are kind of daring you to run the ball I don't think the Rams can get good enough results doing it to to have the incentive to stick with it so I'm just not I'm not easily imagining where the production comes from for for the Rams it's like I can imagine it just being a lot of targets for Nakua and Cup and Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. Whatever is there, I can't see keeping up with the sum of the Ravens offense on the other side. And that it's in Baltimore, I, d- I think that makes it not for like travel reasons. It's just uh, it's more like the Ravens are just kind of tougher there. And the the ball bounces their way a little more often. It's true. Um, I, I go back and forth on, on, on how I view this game. I, I think it's either the Rams keep it close or the Ravens kind of boat race them. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, sort of similar to, um, you know, the, the Rams game in Dallas. Obviously, Stafford uh, banged up his, his thumb in that one. But the, it could... Lamar, um, the, his MVP season, didn't he have one of his insane? He had like four first half touchdowns against the Rams oh, or something. Oh, like my that. God. That that Monday night game. And, and uh, I think Marcus Peters had a pick six. I mean, that that was the most fun I've ever had watching a regular season game. I think that was 
you know, on national TV. The not even Jamal Lewis, uh, two ninety five or whatever. Uh, that that's true. That that that, uh, that was history a, at the time. We and we and we know it in in a uh, RotoWire podcast lore that uh, young Johnny <laughs> was in attendance for for that game. That was oh man, that was amazing. But the twenty nineteen season was like a fever dream. But okay, um, yeah. <laughs> but beyond that, um. You know, we, we got a glimpse of what the offense looks like post Mark Andrews against the Chargers a couple weeks ago. Did you have any big takeaways from that as it comes to, you know, guys like Zay Flowers, Odell and, and uh, Isaiah Likely? Well, Likely did a good job. Uh, the routes looked a little different to me, or at least the catches looked a little different to me than the kind of stuff Andrews does, which makes sense because they're very different trait wise. Like Andrews perfectly built to do just seam stretching post routes all day uh whereas likely doesn't really have the reach the mass or the speed to threaten those parts of the field the same way it would make sense that they'd be hitting him more on like crossing routes and out routes things that are that are a little more horizontally oriented so it's good that he you know is effective in that capacity but uh, anytime you're rearranging an offense this way and especially when you're sort of rechanneling such important production as Andrews and and again in that particular part of the field the seam threat I worry about the effect of maybe forfeiting that fet, uh that threat in the long term and because uh, basically it's like if, if you have likely running routes or, or threatening on routes that Andrews you know did not and, and likely not threatening Andrews uh, the routes that Andrews did the defense is going to start rolling kind of toward those parts of the field that likely tends to get his targets and I worry that that's too close or, or less than ideal uh, proximate to the part of the field that flowers runs in, uh, which is to say just kind of like underneath horizontally. And I know that flowers has speed. The defense has to respect the speed with flowers, at least like they're not going to, they're not going to totally sell out crashing underneath on flowers because flowers can run uh, a double move. Or even if, if you're just playing dishonest crashing downward coverage against him, he can beat you downfield that way. But for base structure purposes, it's like I don't think Flowers is a downfield threat on any given play as much as Andrews was. So it all falls again to the question of can Odell Beckham be this downfield threat, this this threat that basically either keeps a safety back a little bit or splits the safeties if they get creeping too close to the line of scrimmage. And Beckham has shown that ability when he's on the field. It's just they, they still are rotating him out. I can't tell if that's just a very specific, like disciplined strategy of theirs. Like we're going to pull him every, you know, however many reps or keep him, keep him limited specifically so that we know that he is always available for when we need him in, you know, crucial situations later in the year. If that's what they're doing, then, you know, it's hard to argue with it. Uh, I don't know how to make those kinds of decisions. I don't know what would go into them, but if Beckham is not presenting that threat, I think they point blank don't have it. And I'm worried, you know, Keaton Mitchell being on the field more, that's good as far as this goes. Like his his speed threat is so profound that it has a, a vertical effect even from the backfield. But that's not where you want your starting point of vertical threat to be. You want it to be on the boundary and you want it to be credible. And I just don't see it. So if if defenses cheat basically and crash downward, kind of like you know the way you play the chargers offense like what what are they going to do if you don't cover anybody downfield they, they can't do anything anyway so 
Lamar can make big plays from that sort of look if the defense turns and runs, but I worried that you're, you're begging the defense to just sit back, keep their eyes forward, keep the receivers in front of them. And uh, that hurts Lamar as a runner. Cause he, he really kills the defense when they go to man coverage and when they turn their backs to run downfield. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I, I wonder if this is going to be a, a lower passing volume game for, for Lamar, like something like 25, 27 type of attempts. And they just kind of try to bludgeon with, with the run game. Although, you know, when you're facing Aaron Donald, you know, that, not that you feel great about doing anything, but it, let alone running right at him. But um, I, I could see this being a pretty active game for, for Edwards and for Keaton. Yeah. And uh, I don't understand that usage exactly. I, I don't understand why they didn't give Gus Edwards more work last week, but maybe that too was like a workload thing. And maybe they're, maybe they're, Willing to ride him a little bit more like uh, whatever the, the month and a half preceding last week, but maybe that maybe just the same. They're, they're doing something like the Odell management where uh, if they basically think they can get away with it, they'll keep him on the bench or something. Yeah, Munkin just I, I think with, with Odell, it's a maintenance thing, but I think Munkin has not uh, gotten stellar grades for, from me for, for his play calling and personnel choices um, over the last month or so. I got way too That's, cute in the Cleveland game, and he, he was not yeah. great against uh, the Chargers. For what it's worth, I, if they were taking that approach with Edwards, I think that would make sense. There'd be totally good basis for it because he has a surprising, surprisingly long list of injuries, like a lot of missed games in his career. But uh, yeah, I, the Justice Hill thing basically needs to stop. Like, their their offense is not good enough to be putting reps like that on the field. Like you, you better be you, you better be rolling like the Eagles. You better have AJ Brown and Devontae Smith on the field making up for your Kenny Gainwell snaps, or else you're just giving the <laughs> ball to Kenny Gainwell. Yeah, and which uh, we'll, we'll get to to that a, a little bit more uh, later. But uh, I think we've we've sufficiently covered this game in Baltimore. Let's head on over to Chicago. We've got the Lions and the Bears squaring off for the second time in just a few weeks we got the bears three and a half point underdogs at home the lions you know they, they got off to an absolutely torrid start in the dome last week against the the saints and then you know the saints really crept back into that game and it was you know close at the end like right on the on the spread number four and a half like the uh the lions ended up winning by five but the not convincing, especially in the second half. And I think that the defensive concerns there are significant and justified. And I think with the, the Bears coming off the bye and, and looking all right uh, under Justin Fields before that bye and getting his thumb a little bit more uh, time to, to get closer to 100%, I kind of like the Bears in this spot. That's fair. Uh, I have had a weird relationship with the Lions this year, obviously. Like mm-hmm. back when they were getting pushed as like a top three team in the first month and a half. I was kind of like, ah, no, they damn you all. They're, 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 they're not that good. And now it, I think it's kind of gone the other way a little bit too much. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just lions fans, mostly like riding that high. And now they're getting like the hangover and like the, the, the despair of being like, where did our season go or whatever? But it's like, this is, this is why I don't know. It, it, Teams is a fan base is what ideally go through a lot of the ups and downs so, so that they don't need to be so shocked each time that happens again in the future. You know, it's like you got to have you got to have some, you know, perspective here that the, the Lions were always going to regress on defense 
because their personnel was always kind of crap. And more importantly, their schedule was crap. Like the, outside of the, the Kelsey list uh, chiefs, which as we're continuing to see, that's almost saying nothing at all. Uh, sorry, not it, it's saying that the offense is almost nothing at that point. Right. Like aside from, aside from games like that, you know, that you could, you could see it was just like, they're not really doing anything good on defense. And those corners, especially is like, those guys are going to start getting beat. You can be, you can actually guarantee anybody like those corners are going to start getting beat, even if they weren't facing receivers like Chris Olave and uh, whatever the, the the Packers guys who who are quite good. So it's it's a it's a problem that we always could know was going to occur. Uh, the one thing I'm a little disappointed with, even as someone who was kind of like a former critic of uh, Hutchinson is like Hutchinson's gone a little slow, uh, a little cold and that that pass rush has almost nothing going for it when, when he's not going. So when you got bad corner personnel and then no pass rush, uh, it's just a really bad setup for an, uh, for a defense. And the Lions offense can't just kind of uh, create explosiveness on demand enough to keep them fully protected from rallies like the ones the Saints made. However, I don't think that game was all that close. I think uh, the, the Lions offense is pretty much locked in and – because I always thought the defense was kind of not that great. I'm I'm not so like, I'm not so deterred by the observation that the defense is not doing that great lately. So a, a little bit worried about goof going outside and <laughs> Chicago just kind of has a way of bringing teams down sometimes, but famously in uh, his uh, Super Bowl season with, with the Rams, like that, that Sunday night game in Chicago uh, where the Bears just absolutely punished the Rams. I mean, I, I don't think it's oh, going to go like this, but um... <laughs> I, uh, I forgot about that. But that's a good call. I, I, I be- the more the more uh, time goes on, the more I, I believe in stuff like that. Like I believe something. Not- now that you reminded me of that, I am convinced of something. Like Jared Goff is afraid of, uh, I don't know, the bean. He's he's he's, he's afraid of yeah the Beloit illinois line and <laughs> something about once he gets that far south he's like i'm a i'm a shell of a man i'm a fraud this is uh, not for but me. however the rest of the t- this is the case every week john he is always the fraud it is always the rest of the team lifting him up and the rest of the team is playing in this game so i do worry a little bit more than i usually do about their offense but this is still fundamentally i think this is still an offense that dictates almost every game because of the offensive line alone. And when you have an offensive line that can dictate the entire course of the game, you tend to just, you tend to not end up in the situations that are the most harrowing. Like that's, that's for the bears They They get to end up in all the, like the really uh, good luck, you know, you're on your own situations. Like that's, that's for the bears to end up with even at home, I think. So like the, the, the venue can bring down the lions. I just don't think it can lift up the bears. And I don't think it lifts. Uh, I don't think it brings down the lions enough to make, you know, more than like a three out of 10 kind of proposition for the bears winning. And part of it too, is you know, this is, this is the kind of game, the kind of situation where the Dan Campbell culture should pay off. You know, like it's, you worry about dome teams going outside in the cold, being soft for it. I can't really see the lions losing for that reason. It would have to be like the, the bears are just doing a good job. And when does that happen? Right. That, that's definitely fair. Uh, one observation that I had on, on the bears uh, before their, their bye week. So they played that Monday night game against the Vikings. Right. And that was fields is what first or second game back for, from the thumb injury. And everyone on Twitter was, was pointing it out. And if you watch the game, you obviously saw it too, but 
they were so reliant on screens. It was almost it was almost like they they weren't confident in Justin Fields like ha- having to take a drop back and and deliver a ball down the field. But at the end of the game, he made an unbelievable throw to DJ Moore down the field over the middle to to kind of seal it, set them up uh, for for that game winning field goal. And it it just I mean you can always say that the Bears coaching is is bad, but I mean to to just be that worried about fields when clearly they shouldn't have been. Uh, I think that's was... generous to think that they were worried about fields. I think they just, that's, that sounds to me like the same offense they ran in week one, you know, like it's, mm. this is a, this is a recurring issue with Getsy. and I'm sorry, every comment from not just Getsy but also Aberflus that I see from those guys, to me, it reeks of a culture of just, just like, just scoundrels like they just never take the guilt for any dan campbell is is such a stark contrast to this like there was that uh i guess it must have been the packers game or whatever and the press was just like so what happened on that play or whatever dan campbell immediately just goes like it's my fault i screwed up and has matt aberflew said that one time has luke getsy acknowledged that one time what you will despite having infinitely more screw-ups than dan campbell yeah no results in a positive sense to show but you what you will find especially from getsy is dozens and dozens of comments defending himself from the press saying, no, that was the right call. We just didn't execute. Those screen passes that you're talking about, he thinks they were all awesome. He thinks that the the players screwed up. So, um, you know, eventually he was forced to call a different kind of play in that game, and that play worked almost immediately. But it's not his inclination. It's He he just, he, he for some reason, won't call a real offense with fields. And, uh I don't know why, but uh, the, I will tell you this. Like, no one's going to bat for Luke Getze after this year. That guy's going to get run out of Chicago, and no one's ever going to go to bat for him because he's 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 going to he's like a Matt Canada case where he, he's going to be burning bridges everywhere he goes. But unlike Matt Canada, he's not going to keep getting jobs in the future. No, this, this has been bad enough to where it's uh, hard to envision him getting another coordinator job, at least anytime soon. And then uh, last thing here. Was there anything instructive from the first meeting between these two teams that, that might apply this time around? Uh, just that I think the Detroit pass defense is point blank vulnerable. Like they, uh, with any defensive secondary, you could say like they get worse when they can't keep the ball in front of them. When they when they have to turn and run, they lose something. But it's with the Lions, it's more like they just can't play that game downfield. If you make Jerry Jacobs turn around and run he can't do it uh although it's not just that it's that they're good underneath like if you if you're attacking underneath you're playing specifically to jerry jacobs's strengths he, he goes from a struggling player downfield to a you, you notably useful one underneath and if getsy keeps doing this crap where he, he calls all these screens that that's gonna make jerry jacobs look like uh and brian branch look like uh i don't know ronnie lott or something and that's embarrassing for an offense at the one hand, but it's also really easy to imagine happening with Getsy. The, the guy constantly just embarrasses himself. So I do think there's kind of big plays, easy big plays to be had with both DJ Moore and Darnell Mooney. But if they're going to do this thing where they where they a third of their passes are screens, then they will find a way to make the passing game ineffective, even though there's a lot of big plays on the field. So 
yeah, it, as you can tell, it's difficult for me to imagine optimistic scenarios for the Bears. It's I can only imagine failures by the Lions, and that's not really my first, you know, expectation for a team like them. Sure. I I I struggle with with the Lions too. I mean, like like you said at the at the start of this breakdown, like it, it's been so all over the map. Like it was it was a little bit too crazy in, in the positive sense early on. It's probably gotten a little bit too negative. We're like three uh, weeks removed from PFF saying Jared Goff's the number one graded quarterback in the in the league. You know, it's like yeah, <laughs> we. I mean, like you always say, man. Like we we've got goldfish brains. We we do. Um, but Chicago just frustrates me because it, you you have a game like the one against Washington and obviously Washington has probably the, the worst second. That was just Jack football. Del Rio uh, out dueling Luke Getze. Oh my and God. It's, it's just like, why not? Even if it's not going to be as easy against literally anyone else, why not test that theory again? Like why not, why not just try going downfield with DJ Moore and Darnell Mooney a little bit more, get, get Cole Komet involved down the seam. Like it, it, it doesn't feel like rocket surgery to me. And yet uh, for, for one Getze, uh, it, it certainly is. And then some, and, uh, you know, he doesn't have the, the Joshua Dobbs, uh, educational background to, to perform any sort of rock or Matt surgery. Patricia even. That's right. And he doesn't even have a pencil, uh, in his ear. So, uh, you know, he's getting it all wrong. Um, let's, uh, let's keep rolling here. Uh, before that, we got a message from our friends over at Splash Sports. Rotowire is proud to partner with Splash Sports on the 2023 fantasy football season. Splash Sports empowers Gaming commissioners to earn by creating contests. Commissioners can set up contests, add their style, and enjoy the evolving Splash Sports platform for customized preferences. From daily to season-long contests, Splash Sports caters to various playing styles such as DFS, Pick X, and Traditional Survivor. And unlike traditional sports books, Splash Sports pits you against your friends and family, not the house. Splash goes beyond betting, a space where friends can connect, strategize, and share in the excitement of sports. Rotowire will be running weekly DFS tiers contests on Splash Sports all season. Can you beat the Rotowire experts? Visit rotowire.com slash splash to enter today. I'm going to be doing a college football bowl season pick'em uh, league over on Splash or one of their affiliate sites. Uh, I tweeted out the info for that. So if you're interested in playing some some college football bowl season confidence pool, Do check that. that out. Yeah, so it's on my Twitter feed and that. I haven't tweeted much this week, so it should be close to the top of the old timeline. Um, and then we've got a message from our friends at Blue Wire. This Rotowire podcast is brought to you by my favorite meal kit, Factor. I gave Factor a try, and I can tell you firsthand eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every meal arrives fresh, not frozen, and they're chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. Every week, you'll have over 35 different options to choose from, and there's something for every diet, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, and there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after those wellness goals. One of my favorite things about Factor is the convenience. We're talking meals that are good to go in two minutes or less. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. There's no prep, there's no mess, no cooking, no cleanup, none of that. It's perfect if you have a busy lifestyle and you can't dedicate an hour plus each day to preparing lunch or preparing dinner. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Factor also offers options for every meal. Pancakes, smoothies, you name it. 
Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, dinner, whatever you need, Factor has it. Factor is also tailored to your schedule, so you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals each week. Plus, you could pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. We've run the numbers over here. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be both nutritious and delicious. Head over to factormeals.com slash rotowire50 and use the code rotowire50. That'll get you 50% off your order. That's code rotowire50 at factormeals.com slash rotowire50 to get 50% off today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right. On to Cincinnati. This game is fascinating. I keep doubting Indianapolis, and they keep winning. And then the Bengals, I mean, everyone thought, and probably justifiably so thought that they were deader than dead after Joe Burrow went out. But Jake Browning just had a Matt Flynn moment basically on, on Monday night football. Obviously we're not expecting that to, to carry over once again, although Indianapolis's defense is not good. I mean, they allowed over 20 points to, to the Titans that this past at a corner, so. especially. And it's like, uh, you know, good, good for Jake Browning. I certainly didn't expect it to go that well, but I think you can at once give him credit for doing a great job as a backup quarterback and also acknowledge it's like it's probably true that the Jags defense wasn't quite on its game. And just as importantly, the reason Browning did such a great job is that he let those receivers carry him, obviously chase primarily. But if if it is these receivers that primarily lift his production, then this should be a, a totally good setup for Browning because the Colts can't cover anybody, even, you know, much lesser receivers than these. So you could, you know, if, if Brandon Allen were playing quarterback in this game, I'd still expect a good game from the Bengals offense. And so uh, Browning's probably quite a bit better than that, or, you know, some amount better than that. No, I, th- I think so too. You know, Browning is such a, a fascinating character. Um, uh, he, he lives in, in a certain lore for me because it, like the greatest call of my life was 2016. And I was like, <laughs> I think, I think Washington's going to make the playoffs this year. And they did, they got smoked once they got there, but Hey, they, they made the playoffs. So that, that, that still paid off. Hell but yeah. um, he, he threw like 43 touchdowns that year, never eclipsed 20. 
uh, he was a four-year starter too he was um that, that was part of the reason why he was like he, he was going into his sophomore year gaskin was going into he his was a high recruit year. like he uh his trajectory wasn't that different from like matt barkley or somebody like that see exactly and then he just he he sort of brock purdy i guess like it purdy at one point in in his iowa state career was like this guy might might be a first round pick and then regressed yeah his final two seasons. So he almost, uh, he almost, uh, what was that? I already forgot this guy's name. Who's that USC Keaton Slovis. He, he was like an early Keaton Slovis. or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, he was like a huge deal coming in for, for JT Daniels. And then, um, had that great first season. And then, uh, I think he's kicking around at BYU. He was exiled. Now. Yeah. They yeah. Sent, they're like, you have to leave the country. <laughs> they thought, they thought that he was just going to be the next Kenny Pickett when he transferred to Pitt, and that, that just simply uh, was not the case. Um, but beyond that, um, obviously we're, we're going to start Jamar Chase no, no matter what. We started him last week. Um, you feel you have to feel a little bit better about Joe Mixon now after after last week because I thought he looked pretty good, and I, I thought you know that that Steelers game where he had all the carries but none of the yards. I thought that was going to be more informative as to his outlook going forward. And I thought against the Jaguars defense has been good against the run. I thought that was didn't a brutal spot. So, didn't it look like they kind of no showed. I mean, I, I Mixon has always been a pretty athletic guy. And I know that like when he gets room, he, he can look good, make good plays like he did in that game. But I was, that was the most shocking thing of that game to me, I think was that yep. the Jags run defense, I guess they got it together later because I'm, I'm 68 yards on 19 carries. Isn't that great. I know he started, with much better efficiency than that. But I guess for like at least a quarter or two there, that the Jags kind of were, I doubt it was intentional. I doubt they were cutting him loose to focus on the receivers, but they, they just kind of screwed up. But yeah, if Mixon has room, he can be, he, he can be pretty good. I, I really do suspect that some of his athleticism is not quite as specifically functional athleticism as we would like. Like, I think it's, uh, he's, he's, I don't know how to say this. Like he's 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 athletic in probably some other sport just as much as football. Like it's like some of the movements of being a running back is like his athleticism doesn't directly challenge the uh, channel there, and you end up with this guy who can do like athletic feats, but just kind of struggles to get out of the backfield more than makes sense. But mm-hmm. when you get him in past that line of scrimmage, like you you can see him quickly change from like sluggish to rapidly picking up speed. And um, I guess I guess the key is like getting him past that initial point and his whole career. I've never understood why it's been so difficult, but it's also been one of those things like it's been long enough now that I I no longer can assume like, oh, he'll get going eventually, you know, No, for, for sure. And then what did you think of, of uh, Chase Brown? Uh, he cropped up on the injury report earlier this week. Unfortunately. Yeah, that's frustrating. Um, yeah, it's also it's frustrating that he just wasn't given a chance before now is this really such a shocking outcome john that after the after the bengals went with travian williams and chris evans ahead of him that oh those two didn't quite cut it so now they're giving chase brown a look why did you need it to go that way cincinnati why couldn't it why didn't you just know oh obviously chase brown's going to be our best running back in october uh, sorry a backup running back in october why why not just get him ready for that now why, why are we doing this thing where it's like, oh, well, for reasons basically like just having practice more, Travian Williams and uh, Chris Evans having probably better looking reps in practice. It's like that's just them knowing the playbook and stuff like that. That's 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 an advantage that even if they have it, it'll lessen with each week. 
So why not just hasten the development of the guy who is going to lap them in the near future anyway? And it's so so hard to get teams to see it that way. Every single team is like this. It's not even like the Bengals are the only ones doing it. But it's like just a simple case of putting a lesser talent on the field because they know the the the, the practice content material more. But games are not practice. In games, you need talent. In games you don't get points for like knowing your assignment. You get points for making the play and you don't make the play by knowing a playbook. Otherwise we just have a bunch of nerds on the field and we don't, we have <laughs> athletes on the field and Chase Brown is an athlete. Travion Williams is not uh, Chris Evans is an athlete, but for some reason can't run He's with bad football. football. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Chase Brown can run with the ball. T- uh, 10% of my best ball teams agree with you. I, I went ahead and looked at my exposure uh, on Monday night because I was like, I, I knew I drafted a lot of him. And I wonder how dead those teams are and whether he can actually help me uh, here down, down the stretch. Cause I love chase Brown in college. I, I thought that he was a total workhorse. Uh, I think he's athletic and it, it was, you know, what, why I drafted him in best ball was a hedge that, yeah, he is going to be better than, than Evans and, and Trevion Williams. And, and I'm not even convinced, or at least at, at the time that, uh, you know, Mixon was going to be full go for the entire season. And I, I think that it was pragmatic of the Bengals uh, on on Monday night to to kind of mix and match and and not just only have Joe Mixon out there and and you know have Chase uh, Chase Brown be out there when he's you know you're just able to get like the full 100 percent you know type of burst out, out of him you don't don't need to like use him for an entire offensive yeah. drive but you know, just get him out there and yeah as a big play specialist he makes perfectly good sense like he's got the athleticism point blank he can catch passes we know he can play hurry up style football and then john you know you're talking about the jalen warren thing where he went from being a workhorse in college to an off the bench guy in the nfl and how being the second role allowed him to play more produce more explosively than he did in college in the workhorse role chase brown should kind of gain like a little bit in his burst playing off the bench like even if they're even if they're keeping Mixon as the clear work horse you know three down guy like chase brown is uniquely well suited to draw back stuff even though he was a workhorse at illinois yeah so i that's a good point and, and a good kind of parallel comparison to to warren because yeah Ch- chase uh chase brown was the illinois offense uh yeah. d- despite despite um you know of course Tommy DeVito being there at the, at the same time, but it, it was, it was Chase Brown. That that's, that's what got Illinois uh, as to the level that it got to uh, in 2022. Um, beyond that, um, looking at, at the other side of this game, you know, how are things shaping up for, for Indianapolis? I mean, obviously Alec Pierce had had the nice game last week, but probably not expecting that again, going forward. And then, you know, what, what do you think of, of Zach Moss against, you know, what's been a pretty, uh, dodgy uh, Bengals run defense. Yeah, I have been surprised uh, how bad the Bengals defense has been this year. And, and even now I can't really get a good sense of what changed because the personnel didn't change that much, but the results got worse. And uh, I'm kind of just at a loss as to theories, what went wrong when I feel that way. It's like, I, I kind of have to worry about the prior assumptions coming back in. Like maybe they'll, for no particular reason, get a little better defending the run as the year goes along. If it's true that they were worse for no particular reason to begin the year. I don't know, but uh, I'm not all that willing to, to give like a, a lot of credit for slowing the Jaguars offense. I think press Taylor all year has been incredibly bad at uh, 
designing the run game in addition to everything else, of course. But yep. uh, I think that the Bengals still have more to prove than they have like the benefit of the doubt as a run defense. And I don't think there's any sort of concern in Zach Moss only having 51 yards last week. I think that was unfortunately a pretty foreseeable thing because he was, he was very fortunate in that first game against Tennessee. Tennessee never plays that badly uh, for long as a run defense. So that was, that was a buzzsaw matchup, even if it didn't quite look like it, this is far from a buzzsaw matchup for Moss. Like if Moss struggles here, I'll be pretty disappointed. Also, if Moss struggles here, that would be a really bad, you know, initial sign for the Colts offense. Yes, uh, I think, yeah, they, they need to get him going. I think the setup is such that they will be able to, to get Moss going. Um, if you're in trouble at quarterback, uh, do you think Minshew's startable this week? Uh, in a way, yeah. I, I have had trouble figuring out Minshew this year. Uh, I'd, I'd want to phone... Uh, f- phone a coworker Jim Coventry to to figure out this. He's been kind of like the the low the uh, in our DFS segment. He always kills this part where he tries to pick a, a cheap quarterback, and so he's always like the weekly whisperer of like the Baker Mayfield Gar- Gardner Minshew types. I, I oh, what a talent! I love that. Yeah, I'd have to defer to him, but I I think it's fine. It's just that my reasoning isn't really based on anything specific. It's just the general thoughts of. I think Shane Steichen's really good and these receivers, they're not awful. And you know, how bad can it be? Stuff like that. He, all right. Here's a, here's a toss up that, that kind of puts our, our feet to the fire here. And I, I think this is a really, really interesting one actually, because I'm kind of mulling over this in a couple spots as well. Um, I have Dobbs in a, in a couple uh, two QB leagues. Um, Feeling on Dobbs or Minshew this week. We actually have them ranked right next to each other at, at QBs 13 and 14, respectively, with, with Dobbs uh, being the higher ranked bit between the two. I was pretty concerned with, with how Dobbs looked against the Bears, but they do get the week off. They do get Justin Jefferson back, and they do get to play the Raiders. So that that definitely, like, those are some positive tailwinds, I, I think, for Dobbs, but I'm also concerned that. Dobbs is someone that that just can start hot, and then once teams get get film, it, it goes away pretty quickly. I mean, he started out being very useful for for fantasy early this season on on the Cardinals, and then by by the end of September, early October, it's like, oh boy, this is this is not great. When is Kyler coming back? And then he starts out great for for the Vikings. Very fun story, and I mean, just I can't get that Monday night performance against the Bears out of my head. Yeah, I was a little surprised at how badly that one went. And I was all year kind of skeptical of Dobbs and, you know, the way that it was being talked about of like, hey, why didn't all these teams trade for Josh Dobbs? I'm like, are we really doing this, Josh Dobbs? Like, he's <laughs> he's cool, he's, but he's a lot more likable as a player than he is useful as a player. And he's a backup who gets traded three times every 12 months for a reason. And it's that he can't throw the ball uh, other than maybe like 25 times a game or just weird circumstances. He can't throw the ball and uh, you need to run and probably just as likely you need to run effectively with Dobbs just to get him like the, the margin of error that he can actually operate within. And we saw in that saints game, O'Connell, I, in my opinion, kind of just had the, the uh, Dennis Allen, I guess it would have been, he had Dennis Allen in a sharpshooter, like you could t- you could tell the the Vikings play calling was just toying with the Saints defense in that game, and and we should have considered like, 
Well, what what about when a Kevin O'Connell is not just totally rocking the defense that he's going against? Mm. Like maybe maybe he'll get a little bit more stymied against another defense, and maybe he won't have a counter adjustment to show. So, I I think what we saw was the result of what happens when a team schemes against the few things that was working against the Saints. And now we wait to see can O'Connell figure out a counter move to these developments. And I think with the time off, I'm a little more optimistic for that. Like O'Connell's uh, far from a finished perfect product, but I think he has shown moments of, of being kind of a uh, above average play caller of sort of like that Lafleur kind of tier. And that kind of tier of coaching can, can have, you know, especially with the bye week, they can cook up some good, novel tricks justin jefferson coming back is maybe the bigger point though um i think even as a josh Josh dobbs skeptic there's only so much you can screw up when you have justin jefferson at receiver and having you're gonna have jordan addison running against some bums now like there's Mm. gonna be guys open and i think dobbs would be much worse than i thought he was to blow it here so i'd probably go with him okay uh it's I, tough. It's I don't mean to make it sound simple. It's just I in for what it's worth, Cam Taylor Britt is out for at least a while for the Bengals. So that, that's a oh, big that's thing right. for their pass defense. It's it's a reason to like Minshew more than usual. I just um I don't know. It, I, I just think that Jefferson Addison is way too in the bye week is way too much for the for the Raiders, but it's it's not something that I, you know, feel strongly about either. Either way it makes totally good sense to me. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a level-headed uh, look look at Dobbs for this week, where you know th- things are working in his favor. But I, I just I have the looming suspicion that um, that that game against the Bears at, at home w- was more of like a sign of things. To he come. is a backup yeah, for a reason. Season. It's true. Yeah. 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 Um, let's get on over uh, to another pretty interesting game here: uh, Jags Browns. We've got the Browns three-point favorites at home. The over-under in this one set at 30 and a half. So uh, they, they're on the same block as, as Steelers-Patriots. That feels a little bit low to me, even with the, the two backups uh, going at it. But um, your initial thoughts on this game and and uh, just uh, what one keep it going for a second. I am dealing with a bit of a cold, so I will be right back. But please begin. Oh, uh, f- feel better, John. Yeah, I... In the absence of John's moderation, I'd, I'm probably uh, a major liability on this subject because, of course, I don't like all that much of what the Jaguars offense has been doing all year. I'm really high on players like Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne, Calvin Ridley, Christian Kirk, but two of those guys aren't playing in this game. Uh, Etienne, I, I think, is kind of nicked up at this point. I don't know if he's going to get better all year. And... Um, Calvin Ridley has already been neutralized in, in much more favorable circumstances than this, even with all those other players active. So it's hard for me to look at this Jags team going to Cleveland and, and I am back. Assume, hey, John, uh, I was John. You might be surprised to know I, I am not high on the Jacksonville offense for this game. And I think that uh, press Taylor with a quarterback like CJ Beathard with Christian Kirk out, playing on the road against a defense like this could really get out of hand. I think, I think Jim Schwartz is like uh, to the extent that he could do cartwheels, he's doing them right now. And I don't know. I, I, I'm not expecting the Cleveland offense to get consistent traction against this Jags defense, which is probably going to bounce back the Jags defense. You know, even if they kind of blew it for two quarters or whatever against the Bengals, 
pretty much every defense in the league will go through something like that. At least that, you know, and um, I guess famously, maybe most famously, John, that that 2000 Ravens team, of course, giving up like five touchdowns to Tony Banks. Yep. Uh, or sorry, the, the the Jaguars in that game giving up five touchdowns. In the, in I was the, at that uh, game Mark, too. Mark Brunell. John has been at all the Ravens games of of importance, and uh, that's, that's right. Yeah, that was that was a, another memorable one. But yeah, so the, it it doesn't mean that the Jags defense sucks now. I, I, it almost certainly does not. Uh, I guess we got to see if Trey Herndon is he out again. Um, yeah, so that that was one loss that might have made a difference, especially in there. Uh, like slot defense that that run defense and stuff like that might have lost something with Herndon being gone so if he's back uh, he wasn't practicing as of yesterday with a concussion that would help the Jags defense and and hurt the Browns offense but uh, the way I see it in the end is that these these are two tough defenses but the offense that has CJ Beathard at quarterback is in more Sherwood Taylor calling the plays with the CJ Beathard at quarterback is in more trouble than the one that has Joe Flacco even in 2023 so Uh, we'd have to be talking at least like 2025, I guess, before I'd change my stance on that. I, I love seeing Joe out there. And I really do. But um, beyond that, when it, when it comes to the Jags, uh, what did you make of Evan Ingram's huge game on, on Monday? And then also, you know, with Christian Kirk being out and Zay Jones being, being dinged up in his own right. I mean, that Parker Washington performance came out of nowhere. I always thought he was a solid player at, at Penn state. Um, I wish, you know, he landed somewhere where he would have had a chance to get on the field a little bit sooner, but I thought he looked good. I thought he looked totally credible out there. Yeah. Parker Washington was one of those guys who going into the combine, I was prepared to rank as high as the second round or something pending athletic testing. And he was not expected to do that well on that testing. Like he didn't seem all that fast on the field at Penn state. And moreover, whatever injury he had, uh, kept him out of testing the whole way so we still don't have testing data on him but the suspicion is that uh, he is rather slow uh, he, like not much of a leaper and this is at a this is at a build for what it's worth that's rather dense like he's he's got to be like what is it like 511 210 or something like that so that's that's a stocky build and I think with his his reach dimensions and his body density that would normally trend toward sort of the slot uh, I think he could compare to someone like Jarvis Landry. And um, the reason I say Jarvis Landry is that uh, both players were very, very productive in college. You know, Parker Washington was super, super productive at Penn State, even though it was with Sean summer. Clifford. Right. Yeah. With Sean Clifford uh, propping him up. And uh, but yeah, it's, it's, in either case, it's like, I don't know how these guys are doing these things they're doing. Like, I don't know why over and over Parker Washington keeps coming down with this ball he's not separating from anyone. He's not running away from anyone. It's, he's not, he's not overpowering anyone, but he does keep reeling it in over and over. And at some point, the question of why, you know, just doesn't even become that interesting. It's like, well, it just is. And um, a game like Washington had is awfully encouraging because that is what he did at Penn state over and over was games like last week. So that, 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 uh, that isn't anything new for him. Failure would be new for him. And by all accounts, there's a bunch of routes up for grabs here. So I, I don't know. I might be the wrong person to ask because I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about him as a prospect, but if there are 45, 50 snaps for Parker Washington in this game, 
I'd probably rank him a lot higher than most people would. I like I know I understand why people would just have a default kind of suspicion of a rookie, but Parker Washington has never done a anything less than really good job. Yeah, he he's always been solid and and um I'll I'll do a little bit of a, of a counter to to your point on on the lack of, of testing numbers. Uh being the combine slappies that we are, is there one school that that turns out athletic freaks more than than Penn State outside of like your, your traditional like Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia type like Penn State's uh, strength and conditioning program got Troy Apke drafted, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I, maybe I think, he is um, more athletic than we think. I hope so. Uh, I just think that that intel would have existed beforehand <laughs> and been kind of uh, promoted. Like when Odafe Owe and Micah Parsons were coming up. Uh, Bruce Feldman, like going into their sophomore years, was on like, oh yeah, the, this fella's running a four three. They tell me, you know, rumors, rumors mm-hmm. from Pennsylvania. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a four three running. Micah Parsons been spotted, and um, you know, it, it was. It's sometimes those freak list reports. You see that and you're like, yeah, whatever. You're, no one does. No one can do that. That's stupid. And it turns out to be true. Like they'll. He'll have some bum from like Appalachian State, like, oh yeah, this guy has a forty-seven inch vertical and you know runs a four-two, and it just it's just small school lies basically. Um, yeah. With the Parson and Owe stuff, it was like, my God, <laughs> they actually are averaging a four-three-six forty between them. Uh, that yeah. I don't know how that happened, but uh, I worry that whatever was in whatever water, whatever Gatorade they were giving those guys was kept out of Parker Washington's uh, served Gatorade. Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you know, but uh, I'm choosing to believe I, I had to scoop him uh, in in a league that this week we're really scratching and clawing there. I, I definitely just drank the Kool-Aid uh, or the Gatorade. No, I just uh, said I'd be higher than most people. I'm, I, I, I have trouble projecting targets for Washington that turn out poorly. Like I'd, I'd worry yeah. about maybe not getting targets because they just run the ball or run such a primitive offense. But if he's running routes, if he were to fail, it would be the first time he ever had. It's, that's, I mean, that is true. Um, we do have an interesting uh, Jacksonville-related uh, question in the chat that I've been waiting to get to. Uh, Ingram or Dallas Goddard coming off the injury? Oh, right. I forgot to address the uh, Ingram part of it. I thought he is a good – I think he's a good player. I thought in that game, just as every other game with Jacksonville, his usage was crap, nonsense, no good. Uh, hate it he's not going to have that long yards after the catch touchdown most games most games you're just stuck with those stupid uh you know six catches for 40 yards nonsense that and this is this is a terrible way to run an offense it's a terrible misuse of evan ingram's abilities but because i have no reason to believe they'll use him in a way that makes sense the, the greater share of the offense that he's likely to get in my opinion might just as rapidly or even more rapidly get offset by declines in efficiency because the play think about how the plays that he's been getting look that it's usually because it's a check down type function and it's usually because the defense kind of didn't cover him and now you're getting just instead of this uh theoretical safety valve it's like it's just it's just a no threat route that the defense is sitting on anyway because there's no one else that they have to be concerned with so uh, if you were using Engram on double moves and getting him uh, post routes from the slot and then, you know, throwing him the ball 10 times, I'd be like, watch out. 
that that's going to be a big game for Engram right there. But because it's all going to be four yard curls where the defense is just jumping every single route, uh, I am less optimistic. I, I I am absolutely disgusted with how they use that guy. It's so stupid. Yeah, it, it was it was very cathartic uh, for him to finally have the the big game and the touchdown. You saw on, how on fast Monday. he was. Yes, you saw how man. fast he was. They keep him within five yards of the line of scrimmage at almost all times. Absolutely insane. Yep. So the I, it, the story continues for him because, it, like, it, in uh, New York, it was kind of the the same deal where they just weren't. Uh, the quarterbacks couldn't throw the ball, teams. so they started running a four-yard curl offense with Ingram. And then, like, even though he's on different teams, like, well, they got to keep using him like he did in uh, the with the Giants. How about using him like they were using him at Mississippi? Look at that. He's averaging 17 yards a catch for Mississippi. That's easy. He's pragmatic. Uh, yeah. I feel like I would I would explore uh, that uh, particular detail a little bit more closely if I were sure. I would probably go with Goddard, though. If he's if he they're saying he's fine. I, I don't know how he's back already, but um, I don't know. How does he just have these season ending injuries that, that he just comes back from like in season? <laughs> Didn't he, he got hurt for a while last year too? breaks his uh, arm this year and he's just back. Bigfoot DNA? I don't know. I think uh, so. Something like yeah. that. But, South Dakota uh, State, folks. Yeah. It's a tough matchup. I don't mean to make it sound like it's easy. It's just I think that the Angram matchup is tough, too, because he's going to have the defense just jumping on him. Yeah, there's like restrictor plate type of uh, things going on with that Jacksonville offense and C.J. Beathard. Um, so that that's definitely understandable. Um, on the Brown side, um, it, a lot of questions in the chat about uh, Jerome Ford. Uh, your thoughts on him this week? Uh, I don't know. I can't really understand uh, the, the way that the Browns have been using some of their personnel. That includes running back. I know Kareem Hunt is getting decent results, but I, I feel like they're not good enough to warrant the prominence they've been giving them. And I don't know why they would take that usage away from Ford. I thought Ford only gave them, you know, Ford's not breaking down exactly. I know he had that one injury, but He's, he's holding up. They're giving him 40 snaps a game. It's like, if you can give the guy 40 snaps, then just give him those Kareem Hunt carries. Just do it. Yeah. Just, just stop screwing around. So if Kareem Hunt is out, even with a tough Jacksonville defense and one that I already said I think will do better in general, I, I like Ford enough, especially because I think the Jaguars' offense might struggle to the point that the Browns get really short fields. Like I think for a low-scoring game, probably low-scoring game, Ford has a pretty high touchdown probability here, especially if Kareem Hunt, if Kareem Hunt is out, I should say. If Kareem Hunt is in, I guess I don't really, I guess I'm just kind of searching for reasons to be optimistic at that point. But I do think Ford has shown that he's a totally good player, or, you know, serviceable, cer- certainly more so than Hunt. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope he gets the shot here, but I, I just don't know what the Browns think they're doing. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that their backfield management post-Chubb has been, uh, weird to, to say the least. And then uh, Elijah Moore uh, obviously was very busy the, this past weekend, 12 targets, only caught four of them. Um, but I think he like led the league in air yards. I think I heard that somewhere. Um, so, I mean, that that's, that's interesting. And I, I thought one of my bigger takeaways from, from Monday night's game, as far as the Jaguars go, I love this guy because he went to Georgia, but Tyson Campbell looked like a bit of a liability. Obviously you're going to play like hurt. Much. Okay. Yeah, uh, Tyson Campbell's, in my opinion, really good. Uh, not like, how do you say this? Um, 
he's not in that top five kind of thing, but he he's like knocking on the door of the top ten, and um, yeah, he's he's tough, but uh, in any case, I, I don't know what I don't know what um to expect from Elijah Moore specifically because I, I maybe I just need to accept that he's not as good as I hoped he would be. I feel like he still has a lot of encouraging indicators in his prospect profile, and he he was so decisively great at Mississippi that particularly because he's an underclassman who's played on really stupid teams and has had all this turnover. I'm kind of willing to make excuses for him that I wouldn't for other players, but it's like, I'm getting forced to make more excuses than I expected to have to, you know, like 12 targets is great on 50 snaps, but four catches for 83 yards. It's like the week before three on nine. So that's not going to work. Like you cannot be, catching under 50% of your passes as like a slot kind of guy. That's just ridiculous. So something has to change for the better. You know, he's still only 23, won't be 24 until late March. He's probably still developing his time to get it together. I know that even now he is still yet to play on a functional passing offense, but uh, yeah, four of 12 targets. That's all due to Amari Cooper getting hurt in that game, I think. Right. And, and Cooper, granted, has not been practicing yet, so he might be out for this game. It, we could be recreating this scenario for more, and it could be that the Browns have no choice but to feed him, even if the results are you know, otherwise intolerably, intolerably bad. Uh, it would help if Trey Herndon was out again. That's the guy more than Campbell that I would expect him to be looking at. I don't even remember who the slot replacement was for the Jags in that game. But... Um, yeah, I, I'm not so much worried about Tyson Campbell. It's just that I I, I can't figure out what Moore is at this point. And uh, yeah, I, I I have a lot of respect for the coordinator Caldwell for the Jags. So if Cooper is out, I do worry a little bit about Caldwell having a good idea of how to spam Moore's areas of the field. But geez, I mean, if he's catching like 40% of his passes, they don't even need to. It's like you'd almost want the Browns to throw it to him. Yeah, just keep, yeah, just keep doing it. He's going to catch 33% of them. Um, we do have a, a, a team defense question pertaining to this game. Do you like the Browns defense at home against CJ Beathard or the Packers defense on the road against Tommy DeVito? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Browns, I prefer okay. just because I think they just got a lot more firepower. Oh, also, I think it's the easier matchup, but the Browns have more firepower. Yeah, I, th- I think so too, but it, it was worthy of, of considering, I, I thought, just because, you know, that. The Giants' offense is not one uh, that we're press Taylor at the very least is no Brian Dable. That that we know. Um, let's see. Uh, let's keep rolling here. We've got Panthers Saints with Saints four and a half point favorites. Uh, a lot of Jonathan Mingo chatter in the in the chat. Boo! I know. <laughs> it, no, I, I don't. No I'm not Mingo allowed. No, uh, no, he's. He's an all right player, but uh, I'm sorry. This is an easy one to call. David Tepper is telling the coaches to game plan Mingo into the offense because taking DJ Chark off the field, the times that Chark is on the field, he's drawing targets more rapidly, doing a lot more with those targets than Mingo. Like, John, how is it? Please tell me how this is that the Panthers passing game is so uh, rich, so, so luxurious and successful that they can put DJ Chark on the bench as he's averaging 7.6 yards per target. Uh, This offense running from the same position, more or less Jonathan Mingo's averaging 5.3 yards per target. 
Like this guy's drawing targets at a rate much more rapidly than he did at Mississippi. He's running on the field with Adam Thielen and DJ Chark drawing targets more rapidly than he did at Mississippi with Malik Heath and Dontario Drummond and uh, uh, Sanders or whatever that one was. This is absurd. I'm sorry. And the results confirm that it's absurd because Mingo is not doing well. 5.3 yards per target. Anybody else is getting benched. But because David Tepper mingles, uh, sorry, um, uh, meddles with his team and puts his hands on absolutely everything, we can conclude that he also had a hand in the Mingo selection, just as he likely has a hand in telling the coaches to play Mingo more than Chark, even though Chark does more with every snap that they give him, and even though they desperately need the help. So, yes, David Tepper will keep dictating that Mingo get forced the ball, but one thing I need everybody to just let go of right now is the idea that he would like transcend the circumstances of this offense. And the circumstances of this offense are horrendous. Even if this were a good passing game, I think there would be serious cause to doubt Mingo's ability to do anything with the usage that he is otherwise getting. But Bryce Young is still the quarterback. So even even though I'm kind of bashing Mingo, uh, he also doesn't even really get a fair shot with the way that the quarterback is playing. Not just that, now that they're forcing him the ball for a number of weeks in a row now, defenses are going to actually start game planning for him before they did where's Thielen? where's where's that fast one yeah shark where's he okay we got them accounted for whatever let them spin their wheels now that they're throwing it this much to mingo defenses are going to say like him all right yeah put someone on him and yeah. let's see how it goes this time not good yeah and yeah so i'm i'm doubting that one i think that that's fool's gold um on the new orleans side of things uh Derek carr was, was limited uh, God, at practice sucks. on Wednesday, he is, uh, I mean, so banged up. Um, I feel like James should be illegalized. Be I, I can't stand watching any more Derek Carr, dude. It just, it is so painful to watch him. It's grim. It's really grim. Don't like it. Do not want. Um, but beyond that, you know, what, what are your expectations for, for the Saints offense? Uh, you know, Alave uh, and, and uh, Shahid, if he's back. Uh, Carr needs the defense to screw up really, really bad. And you, you better hope too that he's not like too nervous at that time, Better better hope he's not, you know, uh, uh I don't know. He's, he's like, he gets scared at the opportunity. Sometimes even it's, it's the blitz, the, 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 the guy standing over the line of scrimmage, acting like he's going to blitz that throws that ruins the whole play that throws him off enough. But just because someone's wide open doesn't mean he'll, he'll get it there either. But safe to say, those are the situations he needs. Uh, Olave though should get wide open against these corners and uh, Shahid certainly dangerous. So, but the problem is, man, John, we saw AT Perry get wide open last week and Carr just would not throw him the ball or would miss the ball when he would throw him the ball. Like AT Perry is not that easy to miss. So, uh, th- maybe the Panthers screw up so bad that they make Derek Carr look good, but Ajiro Viro is one of the best defensive coaches in the league and. I'd be a little surprised if he was blindsided by whatever it is that the Saints try to do here. So Olave can transcend. I think Shahid can transcend too, but they'll need to because uh, those corners, they're they're at a disadvantage talent-wise, but they're going to have good instruction from uh, the defensive coordinating. And uh, I don't know, man, I, I, I just can't. I can't see an offense operating with cards. Like even, even to the extent that they move the ball, it's just this kind of desperation drill. You know, it's like, it's just, it's just so brutal to watch. And I don't think him, if he's hurt, I don't think that's going to help any of it. Nope. So that this is a, uh, that's a gross one all around. I don't think we, we need to, to uh, linger too much longer on this matchup. Let's go 
Texans, Jets. We've got the Jets as four-point underdogs at home. This line, I feel like, has moved a little bit this week. It's at, Yeah, it's, it was at six and a half in favor of the Texans as of Monday. Now it's three and a half. Uh, can you give any explanation why it would, it would go this much in the Jets' direction? Is, it, is that the <laughs> Zach Wilson effect? I get, yeah, that, was, that must be it. But if it's not that, what is it exactly? Maybe maybe we need not call it like the Zach Wilson bump, uh, but maybe like the not Tim Boyle uh, trampoline in hell shot back up to earth kind of scenario. I don't know. It's like it's it's not a dead cat bounce. It's more serious than that. But maybe that's what it is. Uh, and Tim Boyle is that bad. So I guess it kind of makes some sense. I guess I, my problem is I don't know why the Jets would get that close almost no matter who the quarterback, at least uh, on, out of the candidates they have. I, it's not like I would have been like, oh, but if they switch to Zach Wilson, the Texans got to be careful. I don't feel that way at all. So I don't know if, uh, damn, John, look at this. In most, like more than two thirds of the bets are on the Texans, and this is happening still. That's crazy. What is going on? Who's this? Is this has to be mob stuff? There's some kind of the point <laughs> contract was finalized, and somebody's gonna throw it for the Texans to the to the Jets apparently, or the refs are gonna uh, overtake the whole game. I don't know. But as far as a foreseeable reason, I have none. I don't. I don't think the absence of Tank Dell is worth that much. You know, no, it's like, maybe it's a like, half point. Or I guess the line would have been set before that anyway. But as far as how the hell the Jets get within three points of the Texans, I've got nothing for you. Nothing at all. I have no idea. It, it It's not making a whole lot of sense to me either. The under. Um, it takes the under at the very least, right? Like yes. The Texans not scoring has to be the only way that happens. Pretty, yeah, pretty much. And, and the total is low here at, at 33, 33 and a half, depending on where you're looking. Um I've noticed a decent amount of uh, hand-wringing about Nico Collins this week because of the matchup, but I think you've you've kind of stated over the course of the year that, not that he's bad or anything, but maybe the, the deference and reverence to, towards Sauce Gardner is a, tid, a tidbit overblown. Like, are we that worried about, about him to where we would consider benching Collins? Oh God, no benching, uh, man. That would be do not bench Collins no matter who he plays against with Tank Dell out. I mean that ball is going to him or it's going to nobody, and I would bet it's going to him. So the, there's a there's a lot to unpack there really because it is kind of complicated and and the the concern insofar as like the Jets' pass defense is good, therefore that's bad for Collins. That's more or less true. Like this this should be a pretty stressful game for C.J. Stroud. It's just that the Texans can stress a defense like the Jets too. It's not it's not just one side is bullying the other. It's like both of these sides are dangerous. And in the case of Collins, the, the, the issue, even more than the matchup, is again, the Texans can't move the ball unless it's Collins. And it is possible that the Texans basically do not move the ball, but that that would be a pretty extreme outcome for them, you know, the way they've played this year. So uh as far as the specific matchup goes, another thing to keep in mind is that generally, to this point this year anyway, I don't think the Jets have played Gardner in any sort of assigned matchup role. He plays on one side of the field only. And so they can make this game, uh, the, the Texans, if they want, should be able to make this game Nico Collins versus DJ Reed. If it really must come down to fear of Sauce Gardner, then they can just put him on someone else. But I don't think that Gardner 
is is that threatening to Collins that they would need to go to that extent unless they just thought Reed was that much more vulnerable? Specifically, mm-hmm. I don't think Gardner can track Collins over some of the like slant and in-breaking routes that he's been running in this slowick offense. And John, you remember at, Mi- at Michigan, it was the exact opposite. Like it, the in-breaking routes and the slants for Collins this year, they've been popping. And that's that's total bizarro world to Michigan Nico Collins, who only ran post routes and fly routes only on the mm-hmm. sideline. And if right. he were only running post routes and, and fly routes only on the sideline, then I'd say, OK, Gardner's a problem because Gardner being six, three Gardner being able to patrol the sideline cover three style the way he does. That's not where Collins is going to make it happen. Um, not without a double move anyway. But you set up that double move even so with those in-breaking, those slant-breaking routes. And Gardner just gets, just as someone like Tariq Woolen, you know, with the Seahawks, like just like Demel Dean with the, the Buccaneers, the more you pull them away from the sideline and toward the center of the field, the more uncomfortable they get. And Collins has shown this year, he's not just comfortable running those routes. They're, they've been some of his best plays. His, his over-the-middle kind of stuff has been some of his most productive moments this year. So Gardner has struggled with the routes that Collins has already won on many times this year. And I don't think they need to make a run against Gardner. So uh, look, looking a little bit deeper, you know, not, not just for, for this week, but but beyond um, with Dell being out, obviously, we, we expect Collins to, to really be, you know, someone that, that probably when we look at the end of season, um, who was on the, the highest percentage of, of league league winners, Collins is probably going to be on there. But. You know, where, where does the, the slack left behind with, with Dell's injury, like where, where does that end up? Because, you know, Collins is going to tick up a little bit in, in the usage as well. But, you know, where, where else uh, d- does this uh, go for, for Houston as far as their, their pass catching guys and what, what we can expect for fantasy? Well, apparently it's not going to be Robert Woods all that much, although I guess he'll have to play close to a three down role. We'll see how much Noah Brown picks up. I personally think Noah Brown is total system player. Uh, I've, I've, I've had Noah Brown trolls on Twitter going after me, John, for oh, no. my suggestion <laughs> that he's on. one of the least useful players in the league. I still think that's true. I mean, his, his yards per target this year is twice what it was in Dallas. And he played five years in Dallas, not you know five games with the Texans, you know? So, um, the Slowick offense has been raking this year. Brown has been one of the most obvious, uh, unsustainable beneficiaries of this 9.1 yards after the catch per catch. That's going to be a third of that. Uh, two years from now so uh, those two huge games against the Buccaneers and the Bengals they're not happening again even if Brown is some version of productive like that stuff it's over let it go Um, I feel like the Jets defense unless they're kind of unless they're screwing up their their zone handoffs over like the middle portion of the field which I guess I guess that's where they're easier beats than they are in the boundaries but unless they're screwing up those plays I don't know how Brown does a whole lot against I feel like that that really aggressive press cover three kind of stuff that the jets do, uh, especially when you add in the pass rush and how, how that makes uh, the quarterback get rid of it quicker yet. I don't know if Brown even really gets off the line that much in this game outside of maybe like hurry up situations where the, where the jets are kind of spreading out their own defense. Like if he's, if he's like, if Noah Brown is lining up outside, I'm worried that he just is, is like three yards within the line of scrimmage every time Stroud throws the ball. So, mm-hmm. I, I can see, you know, that the, the risk for Collins in this game is that there's so much slack falling on him that the Jets start selling out against him and finding some success with it because of the others being unable to make an impact. But, uh, I, John, I'm I'm a Xavier Hutchinson truther. I think we both right. had, we both have some amount of um, optimism for John Mechie. 
actually i meant to discuss this specifically we're about to find out something important with john mechie or or, uh, something important about the way the texans view him anyway which is was he kept in a part-time you know one and a half down role because dell was better than him so much better than him or was it that mechie is still working his way back to full health right if mechie only plays 20 snaps in this game we know it was the second one yeah, and I'm not saying the first one means Mechie's like toast or something. I, I think he's good enough as a prospect that we can, we can say like that would not mean that he is toast. But if he doesn't get to 30, 40 snaps in this game, we know it's because basically his body couldn't handle it yet, and that would mean in the future we we'd have to you know probably give more assumption to, to Mechie's presence in the offense because he'd probably be further recovered next year than he was this year, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something to watch for. If, if he goes to 40 snaps in this game, that in a way would be kind of bad for his prospect profile because it would mean they deliberately played him less. But you know what? Noah Brown playing more, Robert Woods playing more, that ends that possibility to me. So um, at the very least, we're, we're either going to see like what he can do, even though maybe he's still dealing with some fatigue or stuff like that, or we're going to see Hutchinson play 30 or 40 snaps. And even then, I'm a Hutchinson truther. So if the Jets are selling out to to cut uh, cutting everybody else loose to sell out against Collins, I don't think Hutchinson would fail. Then I think if you put Hutchinson in these snaps that Noah Brown has gotten this year, you get the same or better results. So I might just be too high on Hutchinson, but I, I just can't get myself worried about the Texans' passing game here. I'm very leveraged on uh, John Mechie. Uh, I, I think he's one of my, my most drafted uh, late round receivers in best ball. So I would love to to see a bit of an uptick from him. Uh, as as we hit the stretch run. And John Mechie is also how uh, telemarketers pronounce my name. <laughs> I got to remember to start doing that. <laughs> Not that hard, folks, but some people. Um, let's get on over to the afternoon window. I uh, got a few more games to fly through here. We've got uh, Vikings Raiders. Um, so we, we we started to unpack the, the Vikings offense going into this week, coming off the bye. They get Justin Jefferson back, but um, to, to detail it a little bit further, you know, how does this set up against the Raiders? I think it sets up good. I mean, the, the Vikings, their offensive line, at least for pass blocking, is probably something like, well, it's got to be top five. It might be top three. And if you can have a, if you can have the kind of offensive line personnel where they're, they're just neutralizing opposing pass rushes, even good ones, then you should be able to go against a player like Crosby and sell out against him and minimize his presence in the game. Even if you're kind of cutting loose these other guys, what, what are the Raiders going to do with that? Like they've, they've got no one else who can get to you. So uh, I think the Vikings have like the capital on the offensive line to, to neutralize Crosby. And if you neutralize Crosby, the defense for the Raiders is just kind of not much after that. Right. And I think that, Again, maybe maybe I'm getting a little too high on McConnell's abilities of, of game planning, but I think with the bye week, there's a pretty good chance, and also Justin Jefferson coming back, I think there's a pretty good chance that O'Connell can put together basically like a 35 to 40 play package that makes Dobbs look good again. Like if it was if it was like they need him to to get into a 75 snap shootout, yeah, I worry about that wearing out over the course of the game, but they should have like an initial script that i that i think is challenging for the raiders and dobbs is one of those guys if, if he gets rolling a little bit it's he can settle in because especially if the run threat is there like think about it if you're a defense going against this offense your your primary concern is stopping justin jefferson and even if you do for a couple 
drives keep Justin Jefferson way below his customary production, you're risking Addison getting a little too much room over there. And then if Dobbs hits that, and then if Dobbs, you know, does the the play action bootleg run to to get the defense a little spooked about the rush threat the other side the defense all of a sudden starts spreading itself thinner and everything sort of starts opening up everything else for the offense and i think that should be the general kind of nature of this game for the vikings offense and then uh beyond that on the raiders side i don't know for for whatever reason it feels like the raiders have been on a bye for like a month they've just been so far off my radar totally memory hold they're 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 no longer interesting without josh mcdaniels there so we don't talk about them anymore i know and we're we're big antonio pierce guys and all but uh, it's still a a very blah outfit that that they've got out there um but you know what what can we expect from you know jacobs and Devontae adams in the michael mayer even going up against the vikings defense uh, so the Vikings to me have pretty much a crap defense. I know not all the metrics say that some metrics say they're actually good. I kind of think they just haven't played many good teams. And I think that they're the blitzing stuff that Brian Flores does is asking for a lot of trouble, especially against a receiver like Adams or even Myers, I guess. I mean, those guys, they know a lot about like option route type stuff and making, reads of zone coverages and knowing where to go and stuff like that and as long as o'connell knows the way they're thinking those receivers should get separation i think it's like the if the vikings blitz like they tend to then they'll need o'connell to pull a Derek Carr and just freeze and like not throw the ball even though his guys are open i don't know if that's really o'connell's kind of thing i mean i i don't i didn't really take him that seriously as a quarterback prospect but i that that flaw of cars is a very particular one, you know. I think the fainting goat. Yeah, the the fainting coward goat, and I, I don't, like O'Connell might be limited. He's he's not anywhere near as talented as Car, but I don't have any reason to think he's the coward that Car is. So mm. I think that um I don't know, especially with this, you have to think of stuff sometimes in like RPG terms too, and like uh, eight, uh Antonio Pierce I think is sort of like a, a stat booster for Aiden O'Connell like as if there's like a courage stat or something like Antonio Pierce is like a plus one to that category and, and maybe lets O'Connell keep it together here but there's there's no one who can cover those receivers in the Vikings secondary so if the pass rush doesn't get there and if O'Connell doesn't just completely blow it making misreads then those receivers have to be open um, Jacobs I worry a little bit about in that the de- it would make sense for the Vikings defense to sell out against the run to try to stop Jacobs, like basically betting that O'Connell can't do it if they sell it to stop the run. So I worry about that for Jacobs. But when he's getting the kind of workload that he gets and when he's capable of making the plays that he can, it's not like an actionable concern. And, um, you know, he's, he's too good to worry about things like that, basically. That's true. That's true. And, you know, he's going to get the work. So, um, you know, that I think it sets up fine for, for him. Uh, let's go. Niners, Seahawks, Niners, 10 and a half point favorites. Niners look like the best team in football to me. That's fair. Um, yeah, the Eagles, not for more than three quarters anyway, didn't put up much of a pushback to that idea. So seems unlikely that the Seahawks w- would do it better. I mean, short of short of the 49ers having some kind of dynamic of like, emotional hangover or like not not looking at the next week seriously because they're so invested in the one before or whatever else short of that um they have a lot of 
you know, pretty decisive advantages over the Seahawks as they do against almost any team. So uh, I, I do think there's a way to like to, to make the, the 49ers defense uncomfortable and, and take it out of its element. But I don't know if the Seahawks are really the team to do it. I guess they have the receiver personnel. Basically, like I've talked about for weeks, I think you need to get three corners on the field for the 49ers. And you mm-hmm. need to find to to put together a combination of stressors that makes it so that the 49ers can't double the corners who need the help, who are Lenore and Ambry Thomas. So it's like DK Metcalf, I worry that especially especially if they don't line him up on the field opposite Ward. Uh, if they put Ward on Metcalf, I think that that's one of the last corners Metcalf wants to see. And, and maybe even in single coverage, Ward can take care of him. That would be bad uh, because then it would leave the double resources to take out Smith and Jigba and Tyler Lockett against Lenore and Ambry Thomas. But if they could get Metcalf against Thomas, that would be an easy way to attack. It would force the double team from the safety. It would force them to leave uh, single coverage on Lenore. Something like that is what they'd have to set up. And they need to hope that Gino, you know, spots it, gets it there before the pass rush gets to him. It's a lot of conditions that need meeting. Whereas with the you know the 49ers offense, like no conditions necessary. It's just everything's going to be on the table all the time. No, yeah, no there, change. There, there's not much uh, useful discourse about about the Niners from a fantasy perspective. If you have one of their guys, you're starting them, and that, that's just kind of it. But Seattle's more interesting. I mean, I they got off the mat in a way last week against Dallas that you know it was like one of the more impressive losses that yeah. I feel like that I've, that I've seen in a, in a little bit, because I, I thought the Cowboys were, were going to boat race them. They did not, um, you know, you, you put up 35 points on Dallas's defense in Dallas, you know, you have my attention again, but um, to your point, uh, you know, Metcalf w- was doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting there. Unbelievable stuff from him. Like w- when he has his a game, I don't know if there's anything that's more fun to watch uh, in the NFL, just so physically dominant ridiculous but um this setup might be a little bit trickier for him um your thoughts on uh would you start jackson smith and jigba this week he is starting to get more involved in this offense well i don't i don't really like want to start i'm not calling him like a must start but if if you're not if, if you don't have an obvious better alternative then it's probably not worth stressing about either it's like sometimes even in tough matchups, you know, the, the matchup could end up being tough for DK Metcalf and it could be like there's slack left. And even if it's not useful slack for the Seahawks, you know, it could just be like, this is, this is what it looks like when our offense is losing in fantasy, the the look of the offense losing can be that PPR receiver paying off quite well because they get like four more targets than they usually do because Metcalf didn't do as much as he usually does. So there's a lot of ways that, uh, bad signs for the Seahawks offense doesn't all fall on Smith and Jigba. The only reason I don't like the only reason I don't fly to him as a option in fantasy is just as simple as the 49ers pass defense is really tough. And if I go a little further, they're specifically tough in the parts of the field that Smith and Jigba runs a lot. I mm-hmm. think the way you hurt the 49ers is spreading their corner personnel thin and then making them defend a lot of the field and Smith and Jigba to this point, other than those like leak looks and I don't know, a couple double moves sort of things, like he can't get to that depth. Like his his primary range of functioning is kind of uncomfortably close to where Fred Warner is. So um it's it's not I'm not seeing this as like an obvious breakout spot exactly. Yeah, I don't either. 
Um, I am slightly surprised that we don't see uh, more cut-ups of his crazy catch against the 49ers uh, on Thanksgiving night. That, that catch was insane, and I feel like it doesn't get the, the airtime uh, that it deserves. But uh, beyond that, I am concerned when, when it comes to the backfield for, for Seattle because neither Charbonnet nor yeah. Kent Walker were able to practice on Wednesday. Uh, we'll have to see later this afternoon what, what the practice report looks like. But if if they're down to DJ Dallas and Kenny Mack, and it's all on Geno, and they're they're kind of a, a one note offense. I think this could get pretty ugly in a hurry for Seattle. I guess so. The reason I think it, it might be a little more complicated is that uh, the way I see it, anyway, there was nothing for the Seahawks to do on this uh, do on the ground in this game. I didn't think that they'd be running on the 49ers no matter what. So while I do think it's important for an offense to have a rush threat in general, it's only useful insofar as it, the defense actually responds to it and i worry that the 49ers even if even if like you know the, even if uh even if walker and charbonnet were to have some success running the ball it's like they how do i say this um i, I just worry that they, they they wouldn't need to change that formula in the secondary at all to address the rush threat and so mm-hmm. i worry that no matter what the run game is doing no matter how much the seahawks commit to it there would always be that sort of surplus detail in the secondary where the 49ers can always give that additional help to that other second or third corner and thus kind of keep themselves in a comfortable place. I think to, to make the 49ers stress at all, I don't know if you get there by running at all. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's specifically how you make it happen. I think it's like, right. if, if the Seahawks are going to stress the 49ers defense at all, it would have never been running back production that was on the table. It was always dependent entirely on those receivers, all three of them being concurrent threats to get the 49ers coverage shells basically dislodged and create openings that don't normally exist. And if you go too wide, too tight end, I think you're always playing into the 49ers hands because you're always putting that third corner who needs help onto the bench where obviously he does not need help. So Yeah, and the the bigger you make your personnel, the more of the field you're handing over to Fred Warner. So, I don't know. I'm not making. I'm not trying to make it sound like that. It's a it's a good thing, or, or like not a concern that the Seahawks can't run the ball. I just, I don't know. I I just think they, uh, if anything, it's like the more they run in this game, the more they're kind of hastening their own loss. Yeah, like the, even if they were at full go, like they probably weren't going to be in line for for a big day on the ground uh, anyway. Uh, let's keep going here. We've got a good one out in Kansas City. We've got the Chiefs as one and a half point favorites against the Bills. This was three points earlier. Two this fraud week. teams. Two two yes. frauds. Uh, so I tweeted about it th- this week. You know, I'm I'm you know li- I've been leading the charge as a Bills are fraudulent uh, guy. I kind of like them in this spot though. They're they're coming off <laughs> the bye, and I I think. I don't know the the way that the AFC is setting up right now with all the other quarterback injuries and the way that Josh Allen played it against the Eagles. I know it's like more anecdotal than, than anything. And he still is a threat to just turn the ball over until the bills lose. But I, I don't know. I think the bills can go in there and get it done. Fair enough. I'm a little skeptical of the bills here. Uh, it's not so much that I have any kind of faith, you know, benefit of the doubt that I'm giving the Chiefs offense. I'm not doing it anymore. No, nope. that, that offer has been pulled. Uh, 
either knock off this Justin Watson nonsense or I I I am going to hate and uh I almost wish bad things for them honestly. I mean, it's like it's such a stupid waste. Stop screwing around. Put the ball in the hands of your best players. Just stop doing anything else. But Andy Reid is not so easily moved and well, yeah. Unless you have like a Terrell Owens, <laughs> unless you have a Terrell <laughs> Owens kind of variable stepping in to just force his hand about how the receivers are going to get managed, he'll dink around and waste six years of Donovan McNabb's prime uh, trying to throw the ball to Todd Stinkston and James Trash. And <laughs> you, I know you must have heard talk rate uh, sports radio in the the early two thousands, John. Oh, you know when it. You were on, when you were on the way to the the, the Baltimore Cleveland game. Yeah, uh, that Jamal Lewis set the record at. Um, so yeah, the, the, this is Andy Reid's thing. You know, the, his his whole career narrative has been reforged in recent seasons. But the story of Andy Reid's career is that he's like a brilliant quarterbacks coach who loves terrible receivers who waste the careers of his quarterbacks. And um, it's it's the largest reason why he got fired from the, the Eagles. Is like by the time they got good receivers for him, he had Kevin Cobb at quarterback, and they're like, all right, enough of this. Yeah. So it's Pat Mahomes that made Andy Reid, not the other way around, right? And mm-hmm. now we're seeing the limits of what Mahomes can do uh, with everything else working against him. I mean, so yeah. uh, they got to start putting some serious NFL reps at receiver, or they can watch Mahomes get returns less than what his own abilities would ever merit. And uh, that's something I expect to be an ongoing issue here. My reason for leaning more so the Chiefs is just that I, I still think their defense is legit. And I think it's the kind of defense – I almost wonder, John, if Steve Spagnuolo in some ways has been building this defense specifically to stop Josh Allen in the Bills' offense, traumatized mm-hmm. from uh, the Gabe Davis game in the in the playoffs. Because I, I feel like this Chiefs defense looks just indicates so much trouble for Josh Allen. And not not so much like not, – not as in like it's a failure of Josh Allen's to, to, to struggle against a defense like this. I mean, in, in large part, or just as much the way that Brandon Bean has built that offense. Like, I don't know if they have the pieces to to threaten the Chiefs. So, I'm worried that this could be a difficult setup for Allen. Um, not not because of the Arrowhead effect. He actually if, seems to be one of the few players not affected by Arrowhead. But I do think what can affect him is Legarius Sneed press doubling Stephon Diggs every play, and then you know Gabe Davis getting locked up by Trent McDuffie on the other side or anybody really. Cause the, if, especially if they're going to keep doing this thing with Davis, where they make him run 18 yards downfield for every target, you might as well play 10 on 11. Just, mm-hmm. just play 10 on 11. It's easier. Uh, gets to the next read faster that way. So uh, that's, that's uh, to me a concerning set of details to go against the particular way that the chiefs play defense and uh, the bills run defense can't, in my opinion, easily neutralized Isaiah Pacheco. So no. even if Mahomes struggles, I still feel like the Chiefs should be able to move the ball more consistently than the Bills, who are usually reduced to just kind of like, you know, Josh Allen, please do some kind of heroic thing for us. And if not, uh, just go ahead and throw that interception. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the, does he have it on this drive or are we going three and out? Those are, those are like the, the two ways that, that a Bills drive uh, tends to end up. I just am of the opinion that there there's something wrong with, with the Chiefs. And obviously, oh, yeah. there, there's things wrong with, with the Bills as well. But I, I feel like the Bills, even in their in uh, losing effort against the Eagles, showed me something. And I, I think that, you know, they, they might make a, a bit of a run here. They might, yeah, dude, uh, you know, be able to make the playoffs. Yeah, I got to say, I got to make a call. Watch that offense, the Bills offense get worse now that Dawson Knox is coming back. 
They're gonna get. They're gonna make themselves slower. They're gonna. They're gonna get slower and not enough bigger or not enough for any you know useful things with that bulk. They're not gonna. They're not gonna become a you know demonic rushing attack because Dawson Knox is blocking in line. You know, it's like they're just gonna get slower and they're gonna still suck at running the ball. No, yeah, that that's uh, yeah. They they're definitely not gonna be a team that that can run the ball uh, particularly effectively unless it's a, a Josh Allen rush. Um, let's go. Chargers, Broncos, Chargers, two and a half point favorites at home. How about let's not? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> crap, crap division, crap teams, certainly in this one. But uh, yeah, I mean, Justin Herbert, in my opinion, is very good. And I think that uh, Keenan Allen, if he's healthy enough, should be in a good enough spot here that you can say like this, this should be an OK Herbert game. Uh, anytime Allen is beneath like 80 yards or so, you have to go, oh, my God did Herbert finish with less than a hundred, but yeah. I'm not worried about that in this particular setup. Yeah. I don't know. The, the Broncos have been better defensively than obviously that they, they were in September, but uh, maybe still not amazing. They had the chance to, to win the game last week in Houston came up a little bit short on that, on that last drive there. I don't know. I, I think the Broncos can, can go in there and win. I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused by the line, a little scared of it. Um, as a result, but um, well, you know, Broncos, Chargers, mm-hmm. sorry, the, the Broncos play that style of football where it's like you try to shorten the game so much that it basically comes down to a coin flip. And mm-hmm. even if you're bad at uh, anything in particular, the, the coin odds kind of just even out over time. The, the coin has a say as the band Every Time I Die uh, once said in their album Low Teens. But uh, be, <laughs> but uh, beyond that, what's up with Austin Eckler? Yeah. Uh, I think he's still limited or was at some previous recent point limited by the high ankle sprain. But one thing I'm I'm just not understanding is, is like all the dismaying about the outcomes with Eckler. It's like we could have predicted that he would be in a really bad spot here at this point. And uh, again, like against the Ravens, like we, ex- what did we expect more than 64 yards on 15 touches? It's a bad matchup. And he's the only player other than Keenan Allen who can do anything with the ball. So his, the difficult, the basic issue with Eckler is that he might not have a perfectly healthy ankle and he's playing in conditions that are far more hostile than he has ever played in, in the NFL. That's it. Yep. And it's not any solace to the fantasy investors, but it's this happens sometimes and it's stupid and it's annoying and, it shouldn't have happened because if Tom Telesco weren't hired as the GM, uh, John, if I had been the GM instead, none of this would be happening and none of these people would be calling Austin Eckler a bum. Like, I don't, there's all these people who are just like, Austin Eckler sucks now. Like, you are out of your mind. Just shut your mouth, man. Seriously, that's Fuck ridiculous. Off. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the conditions remain bad, but this matchup against Denver is not, in my opinion, is not nearly as bad as Baltimore or going on the road to New England in a game where Keenan Allen's like 60% healthy and the Patriots don't have to worry about him even like that's, right. that's so brutal. Yeah. That, that no one's really uh, succeeding under, under those conditions. So that, that's some good, um, you know, context when it comes to Eckler, because I'm leveraged on Eckler and I've been frustrated by it, by the results uh, this year, but that to, to certain extents, like they, they are out of, uh, out of his control. The chargers really have two options on offense as we've detailed in, in Eckler himself. Uh, probably not at 100 percent. That offensive line probably middling at at best. And uh, it, yeah, one of the stranger plot lines this year is uh, Kellen Moore was, was the guy holding the Cowboys back. It seems like, which is uh, 
I am. I will go ahead and predict that Brandon Staley had plenty of say or, or speculate. I should say that Staley had a lot of input on this offense because it looks exactly the same to me as last year. I mean, it's, you know. yeah, putting the stale and Staley, am I right? Um, let's uh, let's get on to the Sunday night. Very excited for this one. We've got the Eagles going to Dallas. It was not long ago that the Eagles were ten and one and had a stranglehold on on the number one seed in the NFC. Now, if they lose this game, uh, which Vegas expects, they are they are three point uh, underdogs on the road here. All of a sudden, they are I think tied uh, for the division lead with with the Cowboys, and their their head to head will have evened out. What I don't know. What do the Eagles feel a little bit? desperate to you almost like that like all the all the in-season additions like making the move for Kevin Byard uh signing what what's left of Shaq Leonard um I'm it feels like they're they're like they're just trying everything like like there's almost like an internal panic there I don't know I think that stuff's pretty consistent with Howie Roseman's methods I mean they uh, even when they were rolling a couple of years ago or last year, whenever it was, it's like they went out and signed like Joseph and, and Demacong suit. They, they kind of, he's always trying to do super team kind of stuff. He's always yeah signing Namdi Asama. He's always signing Vince young as a backup quarterback. Like this is always what the Eagles under Roseman have anyway have done. Uh, but they certainly have reason to be a bit panicked. Like even if that wasn't the reason for those moves, it's, it's a, it's a secondary thing that, that, they should be feeling and this this is a tough one for me to break down um you know impartially because i have a very specific theory and have for weeks had a very specific theory about what's going on here but i think the eagles are point blank throwing the ball way too much and at this point they're not even getting like the benefit of the doubt of the rush threat there it's like t- teams have noticed like uh well swift was doing a good job i, I don't know why they've gone away from him as much but like they're making Hertz throw the ball too much. And you could see yeah. that in the fact that his turnover rate was just skyrocketing uh, leading up even before last week. And so through 403 pass attempts now, he has 10 interceptions, whereas last year he finished with 460 pass attempts and six interceptions. Uh, yep. The yard per attempt is down 0.6. So that's that's really bad because that means returns for guys like even not so much A.J. Brown, I guess, but uh, Smith, his returns have diminished a little bit. And I think we're just we're at that point where it's just very simply overexposure. The the Eagles need to be able to threaten more of the field with route runners from the personnel packages that they're running their pass plays, or they need to from that personnel package throw the ball less. It's as simple as that to me. Uh, they, they've they've run out of ways to strain the defense's bandwidths from the personnel packages that they run, and until they start doing different things from those packages the results will probably just keep getting worse. I mean, not, not every defense is, is nearly as tough as the 49ers. Some, we're talking like, you know, the high level ambitions that a team like the Eagles have at this point, if they right. want to beat the kind of defenses that they should and need to be able to beat to get to where they want to go. They're not at that point right now and they have to change something to get there or they just won't. Yeah. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. And, you know, you're going into a hostile environment and, and it's a, a big like playmaking uh, type of pass defense that, that Dallas has like this could I feel like this might get ugly for for the Eagles. Like, I don't feel as strongly about it as, as I did about uh, the 49ers beating up on them last week. But I, I think we're you know, we might have the 
panic meter out for for the Eagles uh, this and they time. They can't play from behind that well, def- you know. Even though they're throwing too much, right? Yeah, they they throw too much, which gets them behind, and then it's like that's there should have been some kind of insight in the fact that Hertz was always at his best when the Eagles control the game and and um, have favorable downs and distances, have favorable field positions, have favorable uh, time of possession details. And you can throw the ball immediately in a game and air it out every time. But if your passes don't land, you're hanging your defense out to dry. And then your defense can no longer bail you out at all in the second half. And all that much more slack falls on this guy who never should have been throwing the ball more than about 30 times a game to begin with. If you want to make Jalen Hurts a 40 pass attempts quarterback, I don't know. You're going to need like another A.J. Brown, basically. Like you're going to need to give him a third rep of a route runner with such a decisive advantage, similar to the first two reps that it scales up in a way that is sustainable. And right now we're just seeing like, Nope, you don't have it. Nope. You you don't. And I don't think uh, getting Dallas Goddard back in the mix necessarily uh, fixes. It should help a little though. I will say that Goddard is a beast, so he should help. Um, And then on, on the Dallas side, I've, I've so long been been a, a Dallas skeptic under, under McCarthy. I mean, they almost lost to the Seahawks. Not that they they, almost, they, they they let it be a lot closer than, um, you know, specifically the, they can't be giving up pass plays like that. And I know Deron Bland is not going to give up 190 yards or whatever every game. In a right. way, they kind of like, they got his struggles out of the way harmlessly probably. But mm-hmm. they can't be doing that kind of stuff, obviously. And, and the Eagles, I, I, I don't mean to make the Eagles sound like they're done. You know, if the Dallas defense screws around basically like they did against the Seahawks, they're losing the game. But I also yeah. don't expect them to screw up quite that much. And Dak is rolling. The Eagles, they they, they are putting too much on two aging corners, and and there's there's not enough um, bridging the gap that that they leave. And you know, Ceedee Lamb to Dallas's credit, Mike McCarthy, I guess, credit. Um, yeah. They have moved around Lamb a lot uh, since that in unnecessary early season struggles. And it's like, yeah, when you use him like this, no one's stopping him. It's not happening. And if no one's stopping Lamb, Dak isn't having nearly as many inconsistencies because Lamb is always rolling. And I think, you know, knock on wood, that's kind of the point they've gotten themselves to finally. With, with the with the Eagles corner personnel, uh, I don't know, maybe this is just like a, a stupid Georgia question, but how bad does Keely Ringo have to be to not get on the field at all? Um, he could be pretty bad. I think his struggles or his, his lack of playing time are also informed by a lack of versatility. Like they would never, ever put Ringo in the slot for even like a second. And no. on the outside, he's kind of just like a cover three bumper corner kind of guy. Like he, he, he can only defend that sideline and only in a straight line. And if you, you take him off of that track, he kind of just, just unravels. So, uh, yeah, he's he's probably, if he's anything, I think he's just like a cover three kind of corner who pr- probably needs to play on a defense that with like a crazy pass rush. Uh, like he did at Georgia. Um, yeah. Either way, um, I think the Cowboys win in fairly loud fashion here. Maybe I'm being overreactionary to, about the Eagles, but I was concerned about them going into last week and it went about as I expected. I, I think the Cowboys hang some points here, make, make a statement. And, uh, all of a sudden people are going, uh, ballistic on Twitter because there, there's an overly large, uh, representation of Philly people on Twitter. Um, Monday night doubleheader. Let's run through these Titans, Dolphins, 
Dolphins 13 point favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe the Titans cover because they run well. I could see them running pretty well on the Dolphins, but uh and I am a little tiny bit worried about the Titans defense giving the, the Dolphins offense some trouble. Like I, I think you you specifically want to get downfield against the Titans. And sometimes the dolphins get downfield by going sideways first. I worry a little bit about that, but uh, yeah, I think it's safe to say Levis is kind of a goofball. That's not a terribly shocking outcome. And no. the dolphins, I don't know. I, I love Mike McDaniel. I'm not going to, I'm not going to look for reasons to, to worry too much about him. No, he is. He's the man. Uh, I, I love that guy. I'm like jealous that the dolphins have him for, uh, as long as he's interested in being there and he seems to, to fit the Miami vibe extremely well. So yeah, I, I think, I think the dolphins get this one done, whether it's, whether it's uh, by covering the spread, I'm, I'm not as strong on, on that one. Right. We can certainly see them doing that. You know, I was dubious on them against Washington last week. I was like, that's a lot of points on the road. And then I looked really stupid. So the dolphins can always do that. Um, but then you can also have games, you know, like the Raiders game where it was a little bit closer even though it was at home, that then you would have expected. The Titans are, are a tough team. Vrabel's a, a tough guy, and uh, you know they don't have a whole lot of pieces. So if if this if the Dolphins start hot, like it's it's over for the Titans. But if they can right. you know be, be within a field goal or a touchdown through after the first quarter, um, I think we're we're in for you know what what ends up being a fairly interesting game. Yeah, the Titans definitely need to pull down the Dolphins into the mud, uh, but they are pretty good at that by now they are um and then let's round it out packers giants packers kind of the darlings uh, of the nfl right now after after uh you know the red hot they are they've won three games in a row jordan love looks like he's a guy i mean uh it stunk that christian watson hurt hurt his hamstring late in that game uh on sunday night but you know that they, they've got uh, interesting depth at, at the receiver spots i mean dontavian wicks Jaden reed romeo dobbs like that's that's all well and good. Tucker Craft maybe coming into I his even, own a little bit. Mm-hmm. I even think that Ben Sims guy might be pretty good. Uh, their third tight end. He was a Baylor tight end. Oh, yeah, a yeah. Baylor tight end, and he went undrafted, but he had really good workout numbers, and he was, you know, totally reasonably productive. So, uh, but yeah, they got they got players on offense, and I still am not totally sold on love, but one thing I'll have to say is I I found his Chiefs game a lot more impressive than the Lions game or the one before that. Like, I thought – um the chiefs are too good of a defense that i i can't i can't brush it aside the way i can with the lions because i i've thought the lions corners were kind of bums pretty much all year at least downfield i don't i don't think they can really cover in other words uh the chiefs can cover and love did great anyway so i i am going from uh mostly pessimistic to to cautiously optimistic but i don't know i I feel like uh some some quarterbacks have had similar trajectories is him and, and it still has turned out either way like they turned out really good or they they still crash back down to earth so fingers crossed that it's the, you know it's the first one and not the second right and you know as it as it pertains to to this matchup going to new york to play on that cursed turf uh hoping for no injuries on on, on uh, that front on monday night but you know the the giants are coming off the bye um, is there anything to, to look for as far as maybe that the Giants being able to stifle the, this suddenly uh, rolling Packers offense? Yeah, uh, so I'm definitely we're definitely finding out the whatever the limit is of Brian Dable's 
coaching like like his ability to le- to elevate Tommy DeVito like gets the bye week gets you know time to work with DeVito on this stuff but we're also going into the uh what fourth or fifth game with DeVito and I'm sorry I know he's he's done better than I thought he would I'll give him that sure. but the other thing is I underestimated how bad Daniel Jones was to make that offense look so hopeless that like going to DeVito in week 10 or whatever was what allowed Dable to start cooking up big plays like he did in 2021 or sorry, 2020, 2022, I should say. So uh, Dable with the time to work, it, it means DeVito might be better than usual. And I don't know what to make of the Packers defense. Exactly. They're so weird to me. Uh, Jair Alexander, if he gets healthy, that could change things a little bit. Gary is, is certainly a monster. Kenny Clark's probably a monster too. I just can't tell if they have anything else. And I can't tell if I need to worry about Barry more specifically, their defensive coordinator, getting totally game plan pantsed by Dable because I kind of <laughs> I kind of do expect that so it's like the best way I can see this going for the Packers defense is is Darius Slayton's running wide open downfield and Tommy DeVito like inexplicably does like a punt throw to like the just like an other part of the field like yeah. that's the best way I can see it going for them I can't really see them I can't really see the Packers just like being on the hunt on defense you know it just doesn't seem possible so uh, I don't know how the Giants do it exactly. Saquon aside, I don't know how the Giants do it exactly. But the Dable factor versus the Dable versus Barry factor, I, I, I can I get surprisingly paranoid about the the Packers defense the more I think about it. Yeah, like I, I felt more comfortable saying that the Packers would would cover last week against the the Chiefs as six point dogs than, than I do. Uh, them covering his six point favorites here dude two weeks ago if you had told me like will you pick packers to cover against uh, tommy devito i was like yes i don't care what, what? the spread is yeah it i don't know <laughs> but but now, now me too yeah i'm like i don't know if i can do six points uh, <laughs> yeah oh man oh you're asking a lot man oh man uh so i don't know should be an interesting game it's uh it's i don't know if it's cool or i would have staggered the start times personally but it is kind of nice that you get two games on Monday night starting at the same time and you can kind of pick and choose whichever game is better. You just end up focusing on and actually the other one by the wayside. Yes, actually it's bad because now I have to write two Monday night football uh, DFS preview articles, which is thanks a lot, Roger travesty. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I, 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 I do feel bad for that, but beyond that, I do feel good about how this podcast went. Uh, that was a, a great breakdown of week 14 good luck to everybody as we get ready for for the fantasy playoffs so if you're right on that border hopefully we were able to give you some actionable useful advice uh big thanks to our uh, sponsors over at circa over at odds are and over at splash sports and of course over at the blue wire network for mario Puig, i'm john mccackney and i'm stalling just kidding thanks for listening try rotowire today free for 10 days Get our premium tools, rankings, analysis, and breaking news alerts. No credit card required. Go to rotowire.com forward slash try. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.